This is The Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to The Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the beautiful hill country of Texas. I am so excited to share with you today's show. My interview is with Ali Alexander, the organizer of Stop the Steal. You know who Ali Alexander is, and you are not going to want to miss today's show. You are going to want to listen to the show and share the show because Ali Alexander is one of the most maligned figures in, in American history. He is actually a great man. Do you know he's my friend? We're going to be talking to Ali about January 6th, the election, the events leading up to January 6th, the events immediately after January 6th. But more importantly, I wanted to know how being the most maligned man in America, how this impacted his relationship with God. There were bounties on his head. He was slandered. He's black. According to Wikipedia, he's half black and half Muslim. That's a little weird, but that's what Wikipedia says. And there's no, like, dispute, like, this is not accurate or this is, you have to read his Wikipedia page. But I wanted to know how all this impacted his journey with God, and I wanted him to share it with you. So today's show is great. All right, this episode is being brought to you by the Epic Times. Stay informed, stay free, get real news, other media outlets don't report. The Epic Times is, and I think this is science, I think this is science, it's the best newspaper in the history of the world. When you go to iReadEpoch.com, use the code Jason Jones, you get an amazing discount. $1 for one month. And then it renews for the year. The first month's a dollar. For $77, you get the whole year. First place I go every day. You need to go to Epoch Times. Also, MyPillow.com. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the code Jones, and you will get deep discounts on all of Mike Lindell's products. Right now, buy one, get one free for the most comfortable pillow you will ever own. And as always, the main sponsor of the show, the Vulnerable People Project, standing in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world when it is most challenging. Do you know this week, you got a young Ukrainian woman out of uh, ICE prison here in Louisiana. We were able to evacuate an at-risk woman from Afghanistan, where the only organization in the world that we know of, governmental or non-governmental, is consistently evacuating SIVs and vulnerable minorities from Afghanistan. Today was a big week for us, and it's about to be a big couple of weeks. We're finishing our installing cameras in schools for minorities and, and our security guards. We've hired security guards for schools across Afghanistan. Uh, a well is being completed, and our first women's medical center will be completed by the end of the month. Do you want to be a part of all this, standing with the vulnerable, when they're most vulnerable, when all the big aid organizations left, the government NG, the government organizations left? That's where we want to be. That's where we are. You can be there too by going to thegreatcampaign.org. Become a monthly donor and give your best one-time gift. And you are on the team. Your oar is in the water and you are rowing with us. All right? I got to get on with this interview. Because you're going to want to hear Ali. All right? Ali Alexander, in his journey, his relationship with God, 
in the wake of January 6th, Jason Jones Show. Ali Alexander, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Thanks for having me, Jason. It is a privilege. I don't know where to begin with you, bro. It's been a wild couple of years for you. It has, and it's been a while since I've been on the podcast. I think you have not been on my podcast since, have you been on after the Troubles? You, or you haven't been on since before the Troubles. No, de- definitely not. I don't think after. I think, I think it was the lead up to the 2020 election. But I could be totally mistaken about that. Well, how, how do you, in your mind, refer, refer to the past year and a half, two years? What do you call it, this era in your life? Have you given it a name? <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. I'm not an expat, but I'm in exile. I'm in, I'm in exile in my own country, uh, I, I think it feels like. And, and in many ways, um, you know, and I think we'll cover this in the podcast, is I've had to confront uh, a spiritual exile uh, uh, at the same time. Well, and that's really what I want to talk to you about. So before we get into the spiritual exile, which I think in a way is going to be a great blessing and grace to you when you look back in 20, 30, 40 years, um, it will, in the rearview mirror, probably be in a way maybe the greatest grace you've had in your life. But I want to set it up kind of how I know you, and then I want you to, and then I'm going to ask you a question. So how I know you is we met leading up. I, I didn't really... We didn't meet until after the 2020 election, right? I is that true? I don't know. It's a uh, blur to me. Well, we certainly were texting. We certainly started texting during the pandemic. Uh, so maybe June or July. We're coming up on our anniversary. So uh, yeah. So tell, uh, when did we first meet in person? Meet like for real? Well, I don't know. You you're, you might you may be right. Or, or no, we met in Austin. Yeah, after the election in Austin, uh, and I had forgotten about it until you reminded me about it a couple of months ago. Because you know it's all a blur. Oh, that's right. So we met when I was with my family. So that was the first time we met yeah. in person, and it I was think so. Yeah, and you know, you and I we meet a lot of people, and we weren't friends, but we were friendly. We know a lot of folks, and you know, I liked you. I admired you. I did not know much about you. Uh, we have a mutual friend, and he, he was he was always, you know, oh, you got to meet Ali Alexander. This guy's the greatest guy ever. And, you know, we have a lot of friends. We have a lot of work to do. We have a lot of cohorts that we do our projects with that gives us enough folks to know. It's like Joe Rogan says, I have all the parking spots in my parking lot have cars in them already. I'm sure you have a nice car, but there's just no room. The lot is full. And, but when we really got to become friends was at, in this era of troubles, I would say is when you and I got to become friends. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that you were able to, uh, extend a grace to me that, um, that, you know, many people that I, you know, maybe knew longer or in a different way weren't able to. And, and, uh, it was really tough. I think a lot of people were, were trying to connect to me, uh, you know, in my period of trouble and, and, and it wasn't really resonating, but you know, you and your family opened up their doors and their hearts. And, um, and uh, you know, I think, yeah, we really developed an authentic friendship, you know, that stood on its own and not, you know, with the professions that we happen to be in and the vocations that we happen to be in. So, yeah, that's why I want to go to before the 2020 election so people get to know you. And actually, I want to learn because 
I don't know too much about what was your motivation to get into politics and how that all really began. And how I, the reason why I thought it was prudent for me to spend time to get to know you is you were building this huge platform. You had a huge social media presence. And I'm always looking to build relationships with like-minded influencers and to direct them towards, um, as you always laugh at me, Uyghur, 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 the Uyghurs and <laughs> other ethnic and religious minorities and trying to harness the influence of our movement um, to help embattled groups facing genocide. And so when my friend was telling me about you, I'm like, oh, this is, okay, I need to get to know Ali and, and he's got this big platform. But before we get to all of that, what was your inciting incident? Like, tell us about the world before the 2020 election, who you are, why you were involved in politics, what was your motivation, and then maybe how did that all change after uh, January 6th? I remember one time you told me that, you know, during your days of kind of being a, a Republican operative and, and, and less of what you've become today, you considered yourself kind of like the most radical, you know, operative in the party, you know, during the Bush years. And in many ways, I, I sit somewhere between the operative class and the activist class. And so I was able to work on campaigns, PACs, you know, C3, C4s, and be kind of mainstream. But I also was very French in that, you know, I helped co-found the Tea Party movement. I was always eager to support grassroots challengers. Um, I, I loved the party, but I wasn't wedded to the party. I was a conservative first, a Republican second. And uh, eventually, I kind of reluctantly fell in love with Trump during the 2016 general election. I actually was trying to be a thorn in his side uh, uh, during the primary, but during the general election, I thought it's a time for choosing, and I was ready to go down with the ship. And what actually happened is we all woke up and our friends were joining the administration. And so it was, a, it was a huge blessing for me to kind of be on the right side, the correct side. Um, but during the Trump years, I decided to wind down much of my um, profession, you know, uh, and uh, did what I had to do to pay the bills, but spent a lot of time cultivating my already kind of large social media following. But I, what I really wanted to do was teach MAGA, these new populists, how to take on the Republican establishment. And so that's what I was doing for, for four years from 2016, really, tw or 2017 to, to 2020. I was, I was educating them on, on, you know, the, the, the tricks that McConnell would pull to kill repeal or, you know, how to call a switchboard or what words you needed to use or how to influence the White House on certain issues. And, and I got a lot of cool stuff done. I got ASAP Rocky, uh, released from a Swedish prison. Uh, was was instrumental and in, tell us in about that. Tell us, I think a lot of folks might not know. Explain. Tell us about that. Yeah, so ASAP Rocky is a a, a popular American rapper. Um, he was in an altercation, um, I believe, with a immigrant um, in in um, Sweden, and um, he got jailed. And it, it was pretty archaic. And I I pretty much hold this rule that look, you know. Whether you're Democrat, Republican, we fight as a family. And whether you're guilty or innocent, Americans belong at home. You know, it's kind of like this, this, this Roman principle. If you touch one hair on the head of an American, it should be met with the full force and the might of American power. And um, ASAP Rocky, actually, and I have a couple of mutual friends 
You know, it's been publicly reported some of my influence on, on uh, Kanye West. And um, after day four, I realized nobody was coming to his aid. And, um, and that this system, right, especially in Europe where they're importing a lot of people, um, favors a lot of people they're importing versus Americans or even the native population. I was very fed up with this. So I called my friends at the State Department started moving um, some things and uh, let the White House know how passionate I was about it and then let some of my friends know in Hollywood. And um, it led to Donald Trump having um, conversations uh, with that country. And we sent over an envoy and um, ASAP Rocky was uh, eventually released uh, into American custody and, and uh, got home. And I thought that was a victory for our country. And really, it's something that could only happen under a President Trump. You know, that story reminds me of something Bannon said to me in 2016. I I um, was not a big Ban- a Trump fan. Steve was my friend. Trump had just won. We were at the convention, and I was pouting, being a little brat. And Bannon was like, I don't know why you're so upset. This guy's going to be the best president. You've uh, This is the guy you've dreamed of, Jason. He's like, don't you understand? I said, he's not conservative. Bannon goes, who said he was? I never said he was a conservative. He's for America and Americans. Black Americans, Muslim Americans, white Americans, Chinese Americans. He's for Americans. Poor, middle class, working class. This guy wants to fight for America. He sees every he sees a class, the class that should be the stewards of the destiny of America are squandering it away for personal gain and profit. And Trump's about America. So that's the, the story you're just telling there kind of fits perfectly with what Bannon said about who Trump is. Oh, it's so true. I mean, there were people within the administration who said, why would we, you know, how many votes are we going to get if we get out a rapper or is he guilty? And I was just like, none of that matters to me. And I frankly don't think any of that matters to the president. And, you know, I, like you, I was at the 2016 convention and I was on the opposite side of Stop the Steal. Stop the Steal in 2016 was a movement created by Roger Stone, longtime GOP operative and and Trump confidant, the, the oldest Trump confidant. And uh, Stop the Steal was an effort to keep the delegates pledged to Trump. Well, I was on the other side of that. I supported Ken Cuccinelli and kind of, you know, the constitutional conservatives who said, let's switch up the rules <laughs> and deprive the presumptive nominee of the nomination. That's how big of a threat I thought Donald Trump I was with was. you and Ken Cuccinelli to this day. <laughs> but by how big is, is, is Trump and then work with Cuccinelli? And Cuccinelli is one of my heroes. Yeah, so I w- yep. I'm with you there. So, so, okay, so there you were. Let me ask you a question, though, even before 2016. You know, as an operative activist, were you in this because you loved the country? Was there an issue? Was it you liked the game and the sport of it? I mean, it's, it's, there are people involved on both sides of the aisle in, con- the, in, in the consulting class that it's just the ultimate game, right? The power politics in the most powerful nation in the history of the world the wealthiest nation uh there's something there's a a type there's folks that are attracted to just the competition of it all the game of it all were you attracted by that were you attracted by issues what was driving you as a young man to be involved in politics before 2016 even during the tea party and even before the tea party yeah I'm, i'm a natural leader you know i'm the eldest three boys you know, whenever I did extracurricular activities, 
you know, um, it, you know, I was a team leader of sorts, you know, president of this club, chairman of that club, you know, do little power plays. At one, at one point, I had taken over the three forensic clubs in my high school, and, and my debate coach said, you know, there's no rule, but, you know, Ollie, you've got to pick one. <laughs> I had to resign from the other two. And, um, uh, but to be frank, um, I'm a person who seeks power. And I, I think that, that I've always, I think before I, be, I, I became older and more mature, like in my philosophy, I didn't understand what I was seeking was benevolent. I wanted to be benevolent. I, I, I wasn't one of these people who, who, you know, was a natural libertarian. I was, I was someone who thought, you know, people ought to safeguard and steward power and they ought to do it uh, with checks and balances and accountability and transparency. Um, but people ought not to be afraid of this thing. This thing doesn't need to be corrupting. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's something that I've always been uh, drawn to do. But politics in particular is, when, when you mention the game, I, I know what you're saying because, you know, I have a bunch of friends on Wall Street, right? And they consider that the game, you know? And people in politics, well, we're like, well, we govern everyone else. So that's the game. And it wasn't that for me because I, I certainly wouldn't have ruffled the feathers that I ruffled. You know, I would have done the five internships. I would have worked on the Hill. I would have become a consultant, would have gone into the administration. I actually wanted to be the barbarian at the gate. I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder. And I believe that America has an unfulfilled promise to its citizens. And I thought if I can be the guy who breaks the jar for everyone else, then we can all do something very, very powerful together. So, so yeah, I'm a natural leader, uh, a person drawn to power. Uh, I'm not someone who's, you know, libertarian and afraid of power. I'm someone who thinks that, you know, you need to wield it transparently with checks and balances, with accountability, and it's more of a stewardship position. But, you know, I'm not someone who thinks, oh, power needs do you, do to be you still believe? Do you still believe that? Yeah, yeah, I do. I, so I you don't believe in, in checks and balances? You... No, I do. Oh, okay. I do. I, yeah, okay. no. So you want checks and balances, but you, you're not a libertarian. You don't, you don't think that we should work to empty... Uh, you know, you're not, you don't want to remove power from the state. You just want to make sure there are checks and balances and then that we're attracting statesmen or people that are working to ameliorate human suffering and serve the common good in a yeah, system of I checks think, and balances. Absolutely. If, who's well, your if favorite founding? So who would you say is the founding father, like uh, Hamilton, or who would you look to as? Definitely not Hamilton. Okay. Um, wouldn't, wouldn't, wasn't he a guy in war for centralized power? Or who would, who would you look to? Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, so this is what's weird. I think that if the people are moral and educated, then I would take away state powers. If the people are not going to be moral and educated, then I think game theory suggests that, especially if we're dealing with a party that's going to seek state power, that we have to be the first and the last to wield it. And so, you know, I mean, I love Thomas Jefferson. Um, I, you know, I, I think the other guys are kind of cool, you know, or whatever. But I thought, you know, not for the same reason that most black Americans think that they were hypocrites, but I think that, you know, the promise of, of the idea that these guys were talking about quickly evaporated, you know, you know, here are guys say, Oh, we don't need political parties. You know, immediately we have political parties. I, I, I find, you know, some of it's about, you know, this, this, uh, 
not eternal promise, but, you know, this promise to a nation, I think that's what makes our founding document, you know, so elastic, something that could survive the, the, uh, the Civil War was that it was so broad that it spoke to a, a promise between God and, and people who sought liberty. And so, so yeah, I think that, you know, and I think that what the cool thing about Trump is that he allowed me to discover in myself that I was a nationalist at my core and that I didn't need to worship ideology and that consistency itself is not a virtue. And I didn't need to fear the other side calling me a hypocrite. I, I'm seeking, you know, the good of all Americans. And I think that, that we can do that in a methodical way. And, uh, but I think it's, I think it's out of benevolence. And I think that if, if you try to shriek away from power, you can't be benevolent to people. Was there an issue that, what was, what was the inciting incident to draw you into participating in the political life? I had gotten in trouble. Um, and I was, I was going we to know. the university. Of- we know, Ali. we know. <laughs> Thanks for letting us know. We know. We don't know. I don't know what Hunter Biden's been up to, but I know everything you have and haven't been up to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know you stuff know, I, you didn't do that they said you, I know it all, brother. So we know. Okay, so you're up to some trouble. All right, you got into some trouble. And then? Yeah, I got into some trouble. And it was kind of like my Hail Mary that I needed to throw to myself. I said, okay, well, I need to go try out this politics thing so I can quickly fail at it. Once I fail at it, I'll come back to this this path and decide whether I want to finish college or whether I want to get like a normie job or work with my mom at her law firm. Like I, I really needed to narrow in and growing up and, and almost in narrowing and growing up, I was, I was, I was doing something very, very uh, uh, whimsical. And, and so I started my firm and, and started building websites for Republicans and I hit it off and I hit it off really well. Um, got a consulting gig almost near immediately with the John McCain presidential campaign. And I never had to look back. And was that 08? I mean, what year was that? Yeah, 07, that was 08. So, well, 07, 08. You were on I were battling because I worked for Brownback that year. Yeah. But McCain, well, McCain ally, right? <laughs> but we, were, we were maybe even more than that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe a little more than that. But um, so, uh, okay. And when did you know you were a Republican? I was in high school. It was it was either my junior or senior year, right prior to spring break. And our debate coach was asking us. She was a libertarian. She asked us each, uh, you know, what party we were affiliated with. And she, when she looked at me, I said, like, I, it was almost like I was so offended. You know, I'm, I'm naturally arrogant. And I said, I'm a Democrat, duh. And she was like, Ali, why are you a Democrat? Because you know, she had heard me talk about Jesus. She had heard me you know, be, be poor, uh, pro the war on terror. She knew that my mother was a veteran, you know, so, so here's my libertarian coach trying to be polite to me and trying to protect my ego. And I said, cause I'm black. And she said, I would suggest you spend this spring break doing a little studying. I love and this. I took that very- this is, this is at a public school. <laughs> yes. A public school. Oh, um, gosh, you know, she taught speech and debate. Um, and, um, I, I came back and I said, Oh my gosh, I, I'm a Republican, but it's worse than that. I'm a conservative Republican. <laughs> and she By the way, at, you know why you are? Because you're black. <laughs> <laughs> am I allowed to say that? Yeah, to a, am I allowed yeah. to say that to a white supremacist? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. right? Like, 
I can't wait. And it's happening, Ali. It's happening. I just saw a poll. 53% of Latinos now identify as, uh, as Republican. And I think I know why. I referred to my one of my best friends as Latinx, and he's like, you ever say that again, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> like, don't ever call me that again. But so I've uh, learned a cool way of, of, of messing with that term. It's called them Latinx. Latinx. And Latinx, yeah, it's something I learned on, on the Clubhouse app, and it's, it's just hilarious. And it, it's funny, right, that the Democrats use the, these terms. And, I, you which, know, there's a Pew Research poll that says 3% of Hispanics have ever have only ever used that. Term. And those are Hispanics that, that were adopted by white liberal Unitarians. <laughs> Let me tell you, Ali, I realized it dawned on me. That is the Anglicizing of Spanish. We right. don't, they, we're trying to make their language like ours, removing gender from a language that is infused with gender. Mm-hmm. They're a little cultural mm-hmm. imperialists, these little descendants of the Puritans that are now godless and even more boring than their Puritan ancestors are, are they're imperialists and they don't stop like with their flag and their changing language in every direction. And they're losing They're It's, do you feel like they're just being washed? Like the left has lost. Am I naively Completely hopeful? Lost. Like I feel like the game is over and now yeah. it's just like, I'm, I'm sitting in there eating popcorn on a hillside, watching the battle fin- wrap up. Yeah. It's, it's tragic. Cause I think several things are over. You know, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, liberalism as we know it is over, you know, and I, I think that we used to say, oh, you know, there's classical liberalism and liberalism, and then there was progressivism, you know, it, you know, largely classical liberalism and liberalism are over. Um, and I say that kind of reluctantly, and, and it's actually my conservative friends who are most offended by that statement. Um, it's not the left. And I, I let them know that's how you know it's over. <laughs> you're more well, offended for this i am than, offended a little bit are. you know and i'm not offended i because I, I kind of fear what you're saying is true i'm working on a book with john zamira called conserving liberalism because um i think you and i may be on different sides of the fence on this but i think the beauty of the anglo-american political community is what we would call i think there's only liberalism which is classical liberalism then there are the progressives which is like a mutant variant but I think that was a whole other conversation. I, I, we should do a show next week or in two weeks on liberalism and the end of liberalism. It scares me because I think the rise of illiberalism left and right can lead to a very strange and dark future. Um, but you might be right. I mean, I do think about that. Is it the end of liberalism? Uh, and I, it's so confusing even using these terms because maybe half the yeah. people listening don't know what we're talking about because liberalism, the word liberalism has like 27 different meanings. It means everything. Well, all of actually. them are over. All of them are over. And they might be. <laughs> no, they. Might. I, I hope that all of them, but one are over. But I think you're right. right. I, I think, and I think that, and the progressives are definitely. They never were liberal, but now they are violently illiberal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As you should know better than anyone. So maybe we should. That's what I really want to talk to you about because, the left. You, I said. We said. I said this to you on a call. That I was trying. I was racking my brain to think, who in American history has gone through what Ali Alexander has gone through. In all of our history, and now I don't know every era and every enthusiasm, but the one person I could think of that has been wrongly vilified, and you and I have become good friends, and when I hear their caricature, what they make of you, it's hysterical. Like our mutual friend Alex Jones. Like who they say you are and who you are has nothing, there's no even no relation 
um, how they try to paint you. The only person I could think of is Richard Jewell. Is the only other person that was so horribly vilified. What do you think of that comparison? Well, you know, in one sense, it's flattering, but you know, uh, what is flattery and, and tragedy, and um, and and you know, to some degree, it rings true. You know, in in my limited knowledge of of Richard Jewell. And that is that, you know, if you go to my Wikipedia entry today, which, by the way, I never had a Wikipedia entry till post-January 6th, and it is, it is the most hysterical read. I mean, okay, that I'm going right now. I'm going, I'm going oh, right yeah. now. Okay, hold on. Keep Democrats, going. I'm going. Democrats, when they're reading uh, the Wikipedia entry, become sympathetic to me. And they said this can't possibly be true. And so, so in, in it a doesn't lot of even ways, have it's. It doesn't even say it's disputed. No, it's 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 insane. I mean, I have two birth dates there too. I mean, they they have literally turned me into some 1980s cartoon villain. And um, you know, I'm supposed to be associated with you know white nationalism or white supremacy when I'm a you know half black. By the way, half black. Muslim. It says you're half black, half Muslim. That's re- that doesn't even make sense. That doesn't make sense. I mean, As it, if Muslim it, is ridiculous. an ethnicity. So your father was Muslim, your mother was black. What was your dad's ethnicity? <laughs> My dad is Arab, you know. Okay, he's from so. The okay, there you go. All right, this is, I can't believe I never read this. Do you know I never do due diligence on my friends? I never, always, I never, I didn't know about my Wikipedia page for long. And people would say, do you know what they're saying about you? I'm like, I don't really even care. Okay, so according to Alexander, according to Alexander, he went to college. It's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fantastical. I mean, planning like, to become you know, a minister. My, you got to be, you know, my, they make you all things to all people. You're all bad guys to all people, right? It's hysterical right. that they, they got to make everyone hate you. Yeah. I think it's so disorienting that it actually wakes someone up that there's an agenda going on. And so then, you know, then I'm on the defense and they're on the offense. And, and then I'm, I'm, I'm asked to respond, you know, to all of these, um, these crimes, you know, these social crimes, these thought crimes. Um, but they, they have pretty easy answers because I walk in my truth. I mean, there's, there's nothing about my life that I hide, I believe, in, in uh, public disclosure. Public I asked you what I can ask you. I said, what do you not want me to talk about? You said everything is on the table. Yeah, and why not? Right. I, I, you know, I lived, I lived my life for four years as a live streamer and, and for 15 years in the public eye while somehow still keeping <laughs> reading this my Republican now. operative. You know, it's just, it's just, oh. it's just, it's very, it's very surreal. It's just very, very surreal. And, you know, I, I was in, I think I told you, I'm not sure if I, I think I told you. I was in D.C. the other week. I was testifying before a, uh, a federal grand jury that is looking for a crime, okay? And, and I don't believe one's been committed, but they're looking for a crime. And I'm sitting in the hotel with my lawyer, and I'm just exhausted after three hours of doing the federal grand jury. I'm trying to avoid the press. I'm trying not to let any news break, but I did, you know, know that CNN was out there. So I was like, okay, news is going to break. Can I get out of town before news breaks? And Sean Penn, <laughs> of all people, comes walking out and then sees me. 
I see him and I just think, oh, this is funny. Here's a, a famous actor that I know of and I really don't like his politics. And he leans in and he says, thank you for cooperating with the FBI. Wait, who, said, who said that? Sean Penn. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, so I just thought my, my world has become so surreal. Do you sit that, there and that, say, Elon Musk is right. I live in a simulation. This isn't even real. <laughs> well, sometimes I say, well, at least I'm a main character. You, you're uh, definitely the main character. Wait, am I, am I a bot? Am I, what are they called? Um, an NPC. No, you're not an NPC. You're, you're definitely a player. What too. is that? NT- uh, what is it? A non-playable character. I'm a non-playable NPC. character in your movie. Hey, at least I'm in the movie. Okay. <laughs> Maybe you're directing it. Maybe. You know? but, don't but say it's, that. It's, it's pretty surreal because I, I keep thinking there are enough things to object to that I believe. There okay. are enough things for us to argue about. By the way, me and you society. argue about a lot. Isn't that great? Like yeah. we have friends. We're on a thread with some brilliant people. And, yeah. you know, we disagree on a lot. Like, so what? Why is that? Yeah. Right? I don't understand why people aren't allowed to disagree with each other. Um, yeah. Okay, so here, that Wikipedia page is ridiculous. I should just put it in the show notes, and everyone listening should go and contest it as being absurd. Um, it's, it's hilarious. Do you I mean, think, I hate to ask you this, do you think if you were white, you'd have to be, you'd be going through this crap? No, absolutely not. Absolutely Isn't not. Isn't that interesting? You know, the illiberal left and the illiberal corporate media is very quick to throw out my birth name, Ali Abdul Razak Akbar, to gin up division on the right, which, by the way, never manifests. Never. Because the right is not the caricature that they think it is. Nobody's offended that I was born Arab. <laughs> you know, nobody's offended <laughs> you were, by... <laughs> you were born Muslim, bro. Your race is Muslim. You're a, your race is Muslim. This is ridiculous. I can't believe it. Your race is Muslim. And uh, you were born Muslim. No, no one cares. I remember when they. Thing? I remember when they launched that attack at you. I called you and said they don't know us, do they? They really think that we're going to go. Oh, <laughs> I never knew. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's not a rumor about myself that I have not read. And at some point, you know, I, I have tried, any of those know, rumors. Did anyone even care? Anyone on the right that's of prominence. No one of prominence. Unfortunately, it's led to, you know, some people who, you know, kind of peddle in, in unsourced media in general to say, well, I don't want to tweet in support with him or I don't want to post in support with him or, well, I want to see how this plays out. And, and that's been disconcerting because I don't know if people realize what time it is. You know, um, the republic may be gone. Or it, it, it may barely have a heartbeat, and it's up to us to wake up our fellow citizens to restore it in a peaceful way. And if we're prevented from doing that, things get really nasty the closer we get to human nature, and we're getting awfully close. So, mm-hmm. so for me, it's not like my pride or I don't care how people see me. It's that I think I see this picture more accurately. I've served as a, as a successful or useful you know, utility for the Republican Party and the conservative movement. And I'm sitting here waving the flag saying um, things are worse than when I was saying they were bad. And um, so that's the only kind of part of all of this that I, that I bemoan. Really? Okay. So I want to get to um, 
what I think a lot of people, what I am most interested in, and maybe most, most folks don't even think about this stuff, but I think about this. But I want one. I want to go over one more little period. The 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 time frame between the election, the Tuesday when we all went to vote, and some of us voted thousands of times, um, and January sixth is two months, sixty days. Right, sixty days. Yeah, exactly. Was yeah, that- it was like sixty-two or sixty-three days. Sixty-three days. It's not a lot of time to foment a conspiracy, you know, an insurrection, um, that it's utterly absurd. And so the idea that from election day to that day, there was some massive conspiracy is, is unbelievable. But is there anything I really want to get to January 6th until today and sort of your spiritual journey? Is there anything you want to talk about in those 63 days? Because for me, I will tell you, I'm obsessed with the mission of my organization, and I'm always looking for places to amplify my message. So there were a bunch of events, and you were the only one that really didn't argue with me. You know, how can I speak? Can I come on stage? I want to talk about the Uyghur. Other groups I had to battle, you know, and I want to bring Uyghurs on stage. I'm going to wear my dopa. And you're like, whatever. Yeah, come on. Come on down. Um. And you were a gentleman. We, you came to a Uyghur event. I don't even know if you remember because it was a busy time for you. You came to an event that we did on Capitol Hill just for the Uyghur. Do you remember that? I do remember it because it was the only nonstop to steal event that I was willing to do. And I really was grateful for you to come that. And, and that's what I was excited about you. I'm always looking for people that are willing to reach their hand down to vulnerable communities. Which you, So that's when I'm like, I like this guy. He gets it. You know, Power, like you said, you want to be a steward of power. And power should be shared to those who have no access for it. Like, that's my whole goal. People who have absolutely no hope, I want to give them a line up, you know. And it's exciting when you can walk into the White House and say, this is a a community that doesn't have a voice in the world. Will you speak up for them? And they're like, yeah, what do I got to do? Oh, how Mm -hmm. about you uh, designate what's happening to Uyghur genocide? And what did Trump do? And Pompeo do? They did that. Um, Mm -hmm. So you came to our event. Do you remember that Antifa heckled the Uyghur and defended China? Do you remember that? I, I, I don't actually remember that part. They were Don't you remember me chasing the guy down? <laughs> I chased oh, him. oh, I remember that part. I remember that part. <laughs> oh, Antifa God. comes. That was real. Antifa, I felt bad. I have a temper. Antifa comes yeah. to heckle the Uyghur. Like, are you kidding me? It is just, but you were there. Is there anything that 60 days... Did you want to share like what was going on? It was so fast paced. There were so many events. Um, I want to, I I want to, you know, I'm incredibly grateful for the support of millions of ordinary patriots and believers across the country who bucked the system and the whole system, the Trump campaign, the RNC, uh, our, our government bureaucrats, we really saw one of the first truly organic people-centered movements in our country's history. It, it was faster than the Tea Party. It was more urgent than the Tea Party. And, and frankly, it was more pure than the Tea Party. We, we just wanted our votes pure to Pure is a good word. That is a good word. It was... That January 6th day, which I didn't want to go, and, and honestly, the January 5th event, I didn't want to go 
Because it was a little too diverse for me, brother. It was diverse. I mean, you had all kinds of folks there that I don't even know what united them. You know what I mean? Um, the the right to vote, Jason. Yeah. The right was, to vote and for it to be counted. I mean, there were trans activists, right? There was like everybody there. Yep. And I'm like, this is strange. I The January 6th event until, and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of January 6th. We can do a whole other show on that. That doesn't interest me. But I just want to say this. I was not, I was like, ugh. You know, I don't know what this is going to be about. And um, I, I I don't know. But I don't even know how many, I didn't think a lot of people were going to show up. When I turned a corner to where everyone was and I saw how many people showed up, I couldn't believe it. I thought if 5,000 people showed up, it would be worth me showing up to talk about the genocide. When I saw <laughs> this event, and it was the most, if you would have taken away the Trump signs and political signs, and then you just showed the, I never saw so many Latinos, so many Asians. I never saw so many South Vietnamese flags, rainbow flags. Yeah. I never saw the the uh, the Confederate flag once. I mean, I know there was one guy there with it. You see in the press reports, but you see, go look at any picture. You see a sea of South Vietnamese flags. You see yeah. all the Hong Kong and Taiwan activists. The Uyghurs were there. Uh, I never saw so many Latinos, which was really amazing. Families that came from all over the country. And um, as I was walking through the crowd, I was in awe. I said, oh, my gosh, this is the first political rally I've been to in 30 years that I feel like every segment of American society is present. And I think the yep. saddest thing about January 6th is that I have not heard anyone tell the truth about who showed up there that day. And I'm not talking about the agent provocateurs and the FBI causing trouble. I'm talking about the folks, the people. Mm -hmm. It was wild. I walked from the White House, from the Ellipse, to the Capitol building before everything happened. I just was unbelievably inspired. It was. It was an it was inspiring beautiful. time. Yeah. It, it 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 was it was pure and it was earnest and. And that's why they took it from us. And that's what they exploited. And, it, you know, I would tell people. Were we know, naive? Our, were we naive? That we yeah, didn't we were see naive. This, we didn't see this coming? That they were going to jujitsu yeah. this? Yeah. I, I mean, I had ran the math in my head. Uh, I mean, to be honest, the, the, the first national event we did, November 12, um, I actually thought that we might be bombed. I really thought we might be bombed. And well, people were stabbed. Let's when they say, "Why did people yeah. show up with helmets and body armor?" Um, because was it the November twelfth event where Antifa came in and stabbed a bunch of folks? That was December fourteenth. Okay, but but they all but they did beat people up at night, including women, senior women, um, someone who was also on a uh, a little scooter mobile, you know, medical little scooter mobile. Antifa beat these people at nighttime, and police largely had a stand-down order. So then December 14 comes, and groups are ready to say, if you do that again, we're going to use self-defense. And then that's what happened. And then a right-winger got stabbed multiple times by a female Antifa member. When, when January 6th comes along, we naively believe that between Secret Service, the National Park Service, the U.S. Capitol Police, that there's not going to be any tomfoolery. But in a lot of ways, that there was never a counter-protest should have been the red flag. 
that should have been the red flag. Where are the counter protesters? Oh, that and is it a turned really out they good were point. They were embedded amongst them. Which is obvious. You know, I want to I want to get to your spiritual journey on this. Um, but before we do, a lot of folks said, you know, this guy, you are an agent provocateur. You are the FBI. And I said, really? Because I was with him that day, and I saw the look and shock and sorrow in your eyes um, when things went strange. And I'll never forget when someone said someone's been shot and we were we were blocks away from the Capitol at this time. And Alex said, Oh, that that can't be true. And they showed us the picture of um the QAnon shaman. And Alex was like, that's photoshopped. I mean that's ridiculous. Um but when it I saw the sadness in your eyes. And I said, well if if he was, man, he's the best actor. And who was he acting for? Me? You know? And there were no cameras around. I was just me looking at him. How did you feel when you, did you realize what was going on? That there there, there were agent provocateurs or what were you thinking? Mm. Did I lose you? No, no, I was, it was weird because it was, it, it, it hit me in waves and I'm, I'm naturally, I call myself a realist. My friends call me a pessimist. Um, but it was that sinking feeling that each wave that came of despair, near despair, wasn't enough. And I was very concerned. I was almost on autopilot. When I first approached it, I said, this is a nightmare. It's going to ruin my event. I mean, that's how stupid I was. That's funny. So, yeah. I, so you're like, oh, these idiots are ruining my event. Yeah. Not that this is, and they're going to make you out to be Tim McVeigh. Not that you're going to be in the news. Just I worked really hard at this and you idiots are ruining my event. Yeah. And I thought it was happening on one side of the Capitol. So I'm like, okay, well, this is too many people to talk to, but maybe we can get some of these people over. And then I realized that, that, that smoke bombs, tear gas and stuff is being fired into the crowd, which looks very indiscriminately. And I'm saying, okay, wait, this is something different than I realized. And Alex Jones and I get up on these wet metal chairs and we start shouting at people desperately and no one will hear us. I lean over to Alex and I said, start a chant. Okay. This later gets used against us. To this day, the committee, the DOJ, the FBI will not tell the public why Alex Jones and myself and Owen Troyer were yelling 1776. It was because we needed a chance to get everyone's attention because we couldn't reach more than 50 people by the regular volume of our voice. And so the chant was so that people would see three public figures that they may or may not know, and they hear, you guys aren't supposed to be here. Why and- I watched as you guys were yelling this at people and running around saying, we're not permitted to be here. And I think that's what your thought was. But they didn't make it clear because without, no one could no. see the stage. I, it's, in, it's in that great documentary, um, Capital Punishment. I think that's what it's called by Nick Searcy, where you watch the Capitol Police open the, the, the bicycle racks up and people walk in. So I thought we were permitted to be there. Everyone thought we were permitted to be there because we watched the, secrets, uh, we watched yeah. the Capitol Police open it up. Uh, we were all looking for the stage. I was a speaker. I thought you were going to be mad at me because I was wandering through the crowd just in awe of the beautiful diversity and all the different groups, you know, that were there, especially the groups that I work with, like the Hong Kong activists and the 
uh, South Vietnamese activists and the Uyghur activists. I'm like, oh, he's going to kill me. I'm going to be late for my speech. And, um, and then when we find each other, you're just, I could see that you were heartbroken and, and yelling at folks to not go there because that's not what we're, we're permitted to be. Yeah, I just, I, I went into kind of clean up and protector mode. There was, there was, you know, a gentleman that I, I end up, when we walk up the steps, I, I grab him by his tie and his shirt. I remember just grappling it because, you know, it's, it's my hand in between two or three bodies. And I pull him until security is more concerned about my arm. They make sure he gets in our bubble and I throw him down the steps. I'm just like, you know, if I, it's, it's almost like you start thinking if I can save one person, if I can save one person. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's where my mind was is I need to save one person. And, um, so you realize you, you realize these people were well the fact that you're not sitting in a prison cell right now means you did absolutely nothing wrong or if you did we have the worst police on the planet earth <laughs> right right like either either you're innocent clearly or our police our fbi is can't even catch a guy who planned an insurrection in broad daylight with more cameras around than anywhere else on earth with those phones so clearly you're innocent, and then yet, I, I want to go to the day after January 6th. Now, I will remember, I remember clearly thinking, oh, no, I was very much worried about you. And I remember my thoughts, like, I, my thought was Ali Alexander is going to commit suicide. Like, this was my thought. And my heart was breaking, and I thought, I got to call Ali. And I thought, if I do call him, I don't want to get him in trouble. And selfishly, <laughs> I was like, if I call Ali... I'm bringing heat on me. As soon as I thought that, I thought everyone is going to think what I thought, which means no one is going to call Ali. So I have to call him. I have to reach out to him, come what may. So I, I, I began reaching out to you, but I think it was a while before you responded. I don't remember. I don't know yeah. if you remember or it not. Was. But it was. It was. Did you have suicidal ideation? How dep- I mean... For those of you not listening who've been living under, you know, living in a cave or something, this guy right here who did nothing wrong but live out his civic responsibility as a free man in a constitutional republic, nothing wrong. And they made you out to be the worst kind of human in every way. And like you said, they picked something and they created narratives to make you unlikable to everyone on every that well, what they'd hoped to do was make you unlikable to everyone anywhere in the political spectrum. Did you, how dark did it get for you? Um, I had a suicidal thought when I was 13 and I, I, I got rid of those, um, you know, 14, 15, and, um, yeah, I think that the, the first time in my adult life that, um, some of those ideas came back was, uh, you know, during that period where I was literally running for my life, literally, literally in an SUV, skipping my plane ride back home, driving through Pennsylvania up to Michigan because the death threats the bounty 
I mean, people were putting there, there's bounties. On the it. left had a bounties on a black man publicly and openly. Did anyone get in trouble for any of that? No, no, no one got in trouble. Twitter didn't shut down any of those accounts, and those tweets are still up. You know, it got up to a hundred thousand dollars or seventy-five thousand dollars for information on my whereabouts in a public doxing. Wait, what? You didn't tell me. Hold on a second. A hundred thousand. What's the one name of that Twitter account? <laughs> okay. Don Winslow. <laughs> Don Winslow. And they're still up there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could go and, down a lot of directions with this. I don't want to go. But so, okay. So you're getting death threats. Yeah, it and got you, dark. It and got you were dark. so. And I mean, how long? So you're. This is J seven, J eight. I mean, what? I mean, what days did the darkness start? I mean, the, the darkness started. Um, you can actually kind of see it in some of the clips of my of the live streams that I that I had. Cause I still have Periscope for another day or two before they shut that down. Um, but um, is is you could start seeing me lose what had made me the strategist of the election integrity movement. Why millions of people were 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 looking to me to tell them what's the next legal peaceful avenue for us to pursue as citizens. And I I you know you could just tell that I was unraveling. Uh, I couldn't tell at the time. But yeah, for for two months, my friends uh, refused to leave me alone. So they were with me for sixty or seventy days after January sixth. And now, um, who was with I you for hit, sixty or seventy days? Uh, I had I had. You don't two have to friends. say their names, but you had, uh, yeah, two friends, and they yeah they were not going to let you alone for one second. Yeah, so we we um, we drove from Michigan to Texas, from Texas to Colorado. We stayed in the mountains of Colorado for weeks. Um, I took a secret trip to Los Angeles and then went back to Texas. And then they stayed with me, um, I think, namely because they were scared to leave me alone. And um, and I'll never forget that first night of kind of being alone. And it was it was a it was kind of a surreal experience because I had just gone through I had gone through the Stop the Steal movement. So 62, 63 days never being alone. And then I had, I had also uh, had people living with me to close out the election, working on my consulting work. So it's like I hadn't been alone in like nine or ten months. You know, not for not for not for an hour. That's unbelievable. And, so when um, was that first day alone? So it was nine or ten, and so was that first night alone after nine or ten months? Was that depressing or was it just odd, uncanny? It was. It was odd. I was. I was. I was. I was too depressed to be depressed. I mean, I was a robot. I, I, you know, at some point I was on autopilot. I just wasn't there. Um, and, uh, it, it wasn't a place of darkness. It was a place of absence. And in a lot of ways, you know, being the spiritual side, it, it would take me months to learn. It wasn't until October that I confronted that I was angry at God, that I thought I was okay with persecution, but the persecution had to be packaged in a neat way that I could talk about or that I could, you know, get sympathy for. And in many ways, I was judging God's allowance on putting me through a trial and tribulation that I thought would be a cakewalk. And it was, it was an absolute nightmare. It was, it was the one thing that could crawl under my skin. And that was the idea that I was misunderstood in my persecution or that I stood mostly alone in something that I was doing for everyone else. And I felt incredibly betrayed. 
I felt unloved. I, I lost more than I can, I can make public. Um, and there was just an absence. There was just an absence. And, and this was, this had followed the most spiritually uplifting moments of my life. I mean, the contrast could not be wider. And I, and I, I began to then judge myself, you, you know, Ali, do you believe, you know, Ali, you know, what kind of example are you to everyone else? And I thought, if I show people what I'm feeling right now, I will affect the other, the, the, the other, the way that people perceive their own faith. Um, mm. Much of what I did on my live stream was encourage people to come back to church or, or tell them, you know, if you've been spiritually abused or if you hadn't been edified, you know, give faith another chance because there's an opportunity to do deep dives and fall in love with this deeply, deeply true thing, but poetic thing. And so anyway, I was, it was, I always tell people the thing that saved me from suicide was, you know, I became an NPC. I just, I, I was so, there are months I don't remember, quite frankly. Like I couldn't tell you what was really happening between May and September. I, I watched a lot of Star Trek. I remember that. Uh, but I don't really remember much else other than that. Well, you're, you know, you have the same, we all have the same nervous systems, right? And I look at Hunter Biden, who's earning, you know, I mean, he's responsible for his public embarrassment in a way you were not. But I do pity him, right? I go, man, this poor guy's got the same nervous system as me. He's just like the rest of us. And he's, these, these videos are out there and they're very incriminating. And um, you're like, how is this guy not, you know, how is this guy going on day to day? We're all, we're all the same, right? And that's why I think it's, no, not many of us, by God's grace, are going to go through what you go through. I don't know if you remember this because I'm sure it is a blur. But I felt like I was probably harassing you because I was so worried about you. And I, I kept yeah. telling you, you need to journal your relationship with God during this period. Do you remember that? Yep, yep, yep. Um, cause I just wanted, yeah, you I wanted you to that. think about, I wanted you to think about God as yep. if I can just get Ali to focus on God, um, that will get him through this time and to be kind of like step. I wanted, I was like, I need to get Ali. If I can get him journaling about his relationship with God, he'll recognize that it has nothing to do with his feelings. Mm-hmm. Now you identify according to Wikipedia, your father's Muslim and your mother's black. <laughs> And you identify as Catholic. Did you identify as Catholic before all of this? Um, I think I began uh, privately, um, you know, confessing that I was, I said my intentions to join the Catholic Church, I think, uh, happened in August of 2020. It was largely private. um, And, um, but it was, it was sometime in, in November after the election that I made it public that, uh, that I would be joining the Catholic church after 20 years as a, a Southern Baptist and, uh, reformed in my theology. Do you think that Catholic theology, um, how do I say this? Like, I mean, I'm, I'm asking a question. It's a leading question. I believe that Catholic theology would have probably given you much more, to lean on during a time of such darkness than 
Protestant theology. Would you agree with that? As I've come to experience it now, yeah. You know, I I think, um, you know, they're just simply more practices and (laughs) not containers, but not rituals, but, but, you know, things to do, things to lean on. Uh, Whereas I think that Protestantism, you know, provides you solitude. Um, but I mean, that's exactly what I got solitude and, and, uh, it was very unfulfilling. Do you think you're permanently changed? Now, you know, I, I would say, I talked to him like, brother, I can tell you're still hurting. I can tell you're still hurting. You seem like the old Ali, maybe even, how do I say it? Thicker. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like you're back, but stronger. Do you feel that? You know, it's weird. I, I can't decide if I'm back and stronger and the country's weaker or if I'm back and weaker and the country's just different. I, I don't know, but I, I do know this is, you know, God and I have, have always had this magnetic relationship. And it actually, I, I, I was, I was, I don't know, I was like 17 or 18 before I realized that this wasn't common. I have, I have other friends who have experienced God the way that I've experienced God in the texture that I've experienced God. But, but I have actually learned that when I'm communicating to my audience and I'm communicating to people I love that I actually need to start at a different starting point. Because for me, you know, there's never a doubt in the existence of God as a child or prior to me becoming a Christian. When I became a Christian, it was like, okay, how, how do I earnestly follow him? You know, and that, that led me towards, uh, you know, salvation, baptism at 19, it led me to becoming reformed in my theology. And, and, and frankly, it's, you know, why I chose to become Catholic because I have to, not because I want to. And you and I have, I felt the same way. I get that a hundred percent. But so, but once you, you haven't gone through all your sacraments, right? Right. Right. I think once you go through that, you'll be like, you'll, you'll think differently. But I felt that way until the very moment of my baptism. And I was never baptized. So wow. my baptism and confirmation, I said, I was like, I said, I'm the most reluctant convert to Catholicism. I assented to the truth of it, but I wanted mm-hmm. no part of its community. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I thought I would oh, really yeah. like to be third Presbyterian if I could be any denomination. Yep. In an affluent suburb in the Northeast. <laughs> <laughs> and I'd like to go to brunch afterwards. <laughs> and my wife and children would wear Laurel Ashley clothes and <laughs> we'd have a brownstone. This was my, you know, and we would all vote Republican, but you know, you know, <laughs> this would be yeah. my choice. It's so true, right? It's so true. And I remember, you know, in, in my journey, which, you know, this, this period of exile, again, this is, this is kind of like, it's humbling for me and it's, it's, you know, also, um, it's not difficult to talk about because I know I have to talk about it, but I, but I do know that it's going to land differently for other people. But like, I, I'm, I'm, I'm truly not standing here as someone who's like, you know, the life coach of how to survive this. I'm, I'm surviving this, you know, you know, God is keeping me around for this. He has spared me. And, and my, my greatest regret is that I actually allowed this period of political exile 
and lawfare and death threats and moving and all this other stuff that, that I've had to do to adapt to my temporal world, I've allowed it to um, affect my spiritual journey and my development. And, you know, it's like I made that decision in, in 2020 um, that I was going to join the church. And then I decided I'm going to drag my feet. I'm mad at God. And um, what was it? You were mad at God or can I be personal? Was it the scandal of Catholics that you respected that's, that's scattered? Both. Um, I, uh, one of the great gifts that I thought I uh, was being given um, in coming to the church was uh, I'm not a guy who, uh, you know, had a father figure, but I'm also not a guy who had an older brother figure. That's been my role. And sometimes it's exhausting. And one thing that I, that I truly have loved and still continue to love is that, you know, I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a kinship that exceeds, you know, my countrymen. And, and I, I felt that ever since I was 14, but there was something deeply, deeply special that when I started this election integrity protest movement on November 4th, Every time I would look up, there would be a Catholic standing there with me and a Catholic praying with me every night. I think I have and, a picture of you and me and, and Eric Metaxas, who's not Catholic, and a huge, I'm wearing a dopa, and we're holding up a huge image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. It was at an event on yeah. December 12th. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, and I just, and I was like, I was like, it, for me, it was, is I look for these synchronous moments in my life is how God's always communicated with me. And I just thought, this is awesome. And, 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 and I have a place to rest. I'm going to leave politics. I'm going to fall deeper in love with my faith. I'm going to be available wherever God calls. And I'm going to have some, some spiritual big brothers to, um, you know, kind of point me in some of the direction where it's, you know, Protestantism, a lot of it's self-motivated, a lot of it's, you know, it's just kind of hyper individualistic and, and I excelled at that, but, um, you know, I was just ready to be a part of something bigger and something truer. And in my exile, um, two of my, you know, Catholic brothers were not, um, were not, um, ready to deal with associating with someone. Like you said, you know, it's if you call Ali, you might accidentally get on an FBI watch list. And I, what's funny, Jason is, I thought I was ignoring everyone else. What it turned out is that a hundred of my friends were ignoring me. And then I was left with Jason Jones. Oh no. I'm like the booby prize. <laughs> you like, it's like the worst prize. Like it's the only toy they have left at McDonald's for the happy meal because all the good toys have been already requested. They're like, sorry, we just have this flash Gordon from 1984 left. I'm sorry. Superman's gone. You know, but in it, it's like, it's like God gave me what I needed. It was, it was, it was, it was a hard lesson I had to learn at 19 too. It's like, I, I just, I, I could, I could tackle so much of the cerebral stuff in the face, but grace was just coming so hard for me, you know, just so, so hard for me. And I was judgmental. I was an arrogant prick. And in, in much the same way is, is that my friendship with you and then, 
you know, two of two of our other mutual friends has allowed me to explore like my vulnerability. And, you know, I guess that's the, the exciting part about being a Christian is like, you're never, the, the work is never done. You know, you're never, you're never perfected uh, here on earth. And, um, and I, um, it, I very much feel like I'm, I'm at the beginning of, of, and it's weird. It's like, okay, 22 years of, you know, what I thought pursuing Christ um, feels like I'm starting, you know, at day one. And, uh, and, but anyway, it's, it's, it's given me, it's given me a different perspective on life and, you know, you know, seeing you fight for the vulnerable, you know, in many ways I was trying to do the same thing. I didn't know it, but I was trying to do the same thing when I was equipping the MAGA movement on live streams, telling them where the Republican establishment was going to screw them. Or on November 4th, when I get a text message, Ali, you've got to link us all together. And I said, I want nothing to do with this. This is someone else's responsibility. And then a mentee at brunch says, if, if Ali, if you could help save the world and you won't, you know, what kind of example are you giving us? And I said, okay, I'm in for two weeks. Two weeks in, I realized I can't hand over this thing to someone who can't manage it. I'm going to see it through, knowing that we are going to lose. But we got to give room, be faithful, and if God wants to grant us a miracle, let's show up. And so, in many ways, it's it's um, you know, the kinship that I have with you is has been something that's you know helped me through this pro- process. But it's you know, it's still very much imperfect, and I'm almost learning too much. And like I said, like my flesh, you know, that's naturally arrogant. I, I'm not used to learning this much. It's very uncomfortable for me. It's very uncomfortable being this vulnerable and, and not in the position of, of teaching or, or leading. And But, you know, now I'm deplatformed. So all I have are my true friends. <laughs> yeah, that's true, huh? Like you, you're de- it's, that's, that's the unbelievable part. You're not allowed to even defend yourself from the absurd accusations. Um, you know, you talk about caring for the vulnerable. That is one thing that I saw on January 6th, all these disparate, that's, that's what I saw at the January 5th event. All these communities that you said, I was thinking, it just dawned on me now, what did those folks that I stood on stage with at January 5th have in common? Um, By the way, there was never a Republican or Democrat event that diverse ever. By the way, you and I don't obsess on diversity. We don't go looking for diversity. We don't have virtue signaling for diversity. I'm just saying it was what they wished they were. And yeah. um, so I was like, what did they all have in common, the folks on that stage? Were they celebrity worshipers of Trump? Were they, no, no, no. I was asking myself, and, you know, it was, these were people that were not allowed to have a voice. They could be a tiki doll of the of the white establishment, you know. Um, they could be, you know, put out there as a, as a facade, but they weren't allowed to authentically express their interests in the way they chose, which is what Trump allowed people to do, express their interests in the way they ever wanted to express them, which was very unique. And then if you look at the January 5th event, broadly speaking, yeah, what did those groups have in common? They were vulnerable communities that were not allowed to participate. And isn't it interesting, Rene Girard, which I know you're probably tired of me talking about every time we talk, it's Rene Girard, Rene Girard, <laughs> Uyghur. But Rene Girard <laughs> says... When you become in solid, when you're truly in solidarity with the vulnerable, you become indistinguishable from the vulnerable. 
And so what? You gave a voice to people who were not allowed to participate in the process. Therefore, you lost your voice. Isn't that unbelievable? It's it's mysterious that you truly gave voice, and the MAGA movement gave a voice, which is a movement that made me very uncomfortable. It was a movement that gave a voice to a disparate communities of people. The only thing they had in common was they weren't allowed to speak in public. They weren't allowed to express their interests. They weren't allowed to communicate who they were and what they believed. And what you did is you gave them a voice, therefore it became necessary to rob you of yours. And I have a debt that is unpayable. You know, that's how I I feel about you, that you gave me a platform uh, to speak on behalf of the vulnerable communities that I serve and um, to reach millions. And how do I ever repay that? I cannot. And therefore, I am forever forever indebted to you um, for giving me that platform. You know, that you shared your voice with these folks and therefore, how could I, how could I ever repay how, you know, you allowed us to amplify the voice of communities that weren't allowed to speak um, from all over the world. So I have, you have, I have a debt to you. I can never repay. You know, what's interesting is, is I don't know if, if I've ever told you, but like so much of that again was like, I, I've had spiritual highs or whatever, uh, you know, it, previously but never that long and i was i was really trying to walk without error during stop to like i knew it was a deeply spiritual thing i remember when we had the saturday rallies at every state capital all 50 state capitals the first saturday after the election and i was like oh my gosh i said okay get every state coordinator on the phone i wanted i i, I want to give them one instruction and my national coordinator was like, what's that instruction? I said, you're going to be surprised and you may not like it or you may like it. So let's just wait for the conference call. And, you know, I, I thanked everyone on the call. And I said, if, you know, there's, there's one thing you have to do and it's going to sound odd to you. But I said, you know, this is a spiritual war and every Stop the Seal rally must recite the Lord's Prayer. And to their credit, nobody protested that. Everyone just said, you know, whatever you want, Ollie, of course, we'll do it. And, and I thought this is one of the things I wanted to fix about the Tea Party movement. You know, the Tea Party movement was, was too fiscally libertarian, if you will. And, and this one needs to be masculine and Christian in its ethos, even though those aren't the requirements for participating in it. And when the request came from you or someone else or whatever, you know, we had a standing rule. It's only about voting, yada, yada, yada. I mean, the rules were so strict that the, the main participants in the Stop the Seal Coalition, they weren't allowed to use their own branding at their events that they were at that I wasn't at. I mean, we were running a truly unified movement. I was so proud of it. But when I heard what you were doing, I felt compelled. And, and I run on instinct, and my team just trusted my instinct. And again, I credit that to, I, I was, uh, one, I was sleeping four hours a day. I was in prayer. I was, you know, asking God to use me. I was challenging the status quo. People who were part of the status quo were coming over to our side. We were then providing them crowds of people. Like it was a no ego movement. And, 
you know, I'll just never forget. It was like, okay, yeah, well, you know, it's like, you know, Jason Jones wants this to happen. Let's just do it. Or, okay, he wants to invite me to his, his anti-CCP event. Let's, let's do it. <laughs> and I clumsily tried to like work in election integrity you did. into you that. Brought, I think you brought election integrity into the into the Uyghur event. And I was, but you know what? I don't care. I do that. I'm like, I'll show up at any event anywhere. And what am I talking about? You know, it's my. I'm doing my yeah, job. Yeah, I'm doing yep. my job. So I'm, I mean, that's the deal. Yep. Here's something I want you to understand too: is when you know when you are vulnerable, you became extremely vulnerable. Having an organization that seeks to serve vulnerable communities, somebody, we rescued a girl recently and I sent it to one of my supporters and I didn't like her response. She listens to this podcast. So here, here you go, honey. <laughs> I love her. She's one of my best friends. But she said, she's wearing Coco Chanel. How vulnerable can she be? I'm like, well, she'd be dead in a couple of days if we didn't take her out of the country. I'm like, do you think Anne Frank was working class? Do you think if we'd have been exfiltrating Anne Frank, um, you know, what would she, would she have looked like a peasant? I believe she had upper middle class, upper class parents, right? So the vulnerable are not, they're not always poor. The vulnerable are usually never weak. They're strong people that are placed in impossible situations. So usually when you serve the vulnerable, you're actually serving, I, I always realize I'm certain it's an uncomfortable position to be in. You're serving people that are stronger than you, smarter than you, um, more ethical and moral than you come from bigger and be more beautiful families than me. I'm talking about me. That's I'm like, they. why am I serving them? It's kind of embarrassing. Right. But then I think, well, no, if I'm a EMT in the back of an ambulance and I go to an NFL game and I have to, you know, put a linebacker on the gurney because he got hit, he's a strong person that's been placed in an impossible situation. If an Olympic swimmer, you know, falls out of a boat and is in the middle of the ocean and I, row up to him in a rowboat. Am I stronger than the Olympic swimmer? No, I'm in a boat. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so for someone like you who always played the role of the leader as the organizer, as the bigger brother, it maybe forced you to learn some graciousness, right? It's hard. Did you find it hard to be in the role of having to depend on the graciousness of others or humbling, or was it something that you, you were able to understand and accept? like the friends, the trout, you know, when you're always the one that people look to for strength, but then all of a sudden now you need people to look to, was that an uncanny or strange dynamic? At, at some point it did. I remember, I re, you know, again, it's like, I thought I was, it, it all changed when I left the ellipse. I thought I was flying the plane and it's just, it was kind of like a frequency thing until eventually it just disappeared altogether. It's, Oh, I think I'm flying the plane. I think I'm flying the plane. Even in our exile, I'm like, okay, we're going, we're going to Michigan, uh, because I'm going to get interviewed on church militant. I'm in control, you know. But I remember moments in the car, you know, not being able to make decisions. I mean, I, I had, I, I didn't have an appetite when, when, when someone would ask me, you know, Ollie, what do you want to eat? I, said, I don't care, you know. I was in the back sleeping, checking my phone, sleeping, checking my phone when we check into a hotel. And so eventually, yeah, it was embarrassing. I realized, oh, these people aren't here because I asked them to be here. They're here because they won't leave because they're concerned what I might do. And 
And um, yeah, I don't like I don't like depending on on people. You know, I I I got one adult gift. You know, and that was a five hundred dollar computer from my mother. But I've I've had to you know provide for myself my entire adult life, and you know it's a, it's a, it's a point of pride for me. You know, I entered this business without a political internship and got to skip, you know, any internship, becoming an operative and went straight to being a consultant. So in a lot of ways, um, I'm exploring my vulnerability. I'm exploring, you know, the outer edges of my ego. And, um, and um, yeah, it's, it's been, it's been a, it's been a humbling task and, and I know that it's, it's still just begun. But what a great, what a great empathy building experience. Because when we're helping, let's say an Afghan who was a, a surgeon or a successful entrepreneur in Kabul a year and a half ago, yeah. and then now he has to depend on us for help, it yeah. allows us to understand. He feels just like you do, right, Ali? He's like, oh, I got these knuckle, yeah. I got this knucklehead helping me. This guy, really? I got to depend on this guy. Um, and so he feels just like how you felt, right? So. I think God, and I I told you this during the whole process, this is God's putting more weight on the barbell because you're about to get really strong. You're about to get a lot stronger. And God's not putting you through an intense strength and conditioning program for no reason. He's got a new, uh, he's going to level you up. Do you feel like, you you know, I, I said this earlier today. They couldn't even cancel you for one cycle. They couldn't even, I mean, nobody, and I don't think this is hyperbole, audience, and you tell me, Ali, do you think this is hyperbole? I don't think anybody has been put through more crap, has had more crap thrown at him than you. I can't think of anyone. I cannot. Who? Maybe Clarence Thomas, again, huh? Hmm, what what do you and Clarence Thomas have in common? I think both your dads were Muslim. (laughs) I don't know. But think about that. Who else can you think of that has been put through more crap unjustly than you? And Clarence Thomas, they didn't, they called him something maybe worse than what they called you, to be honest. But uh, mm-hmm. by the way, it's a traditional thing they call black men they don't like, right? What they called Clarence Thomas. Yeah. It's like from the same bag of yeah. tricks they were using 20 years before uh, when, mm-hmm. when, when uh, Biden was hanging out with Corn Pop. Um, <laughs> it was, you know? But is can you think of have you thought because I I always look in my work, I always look to try to find people in history that have done similar work so I can look to their life and read their memoirs to give me hints at how to weather the burden of our work or to do it more effectively. Did you look for examples in history to like who has gone through this? And, and you're like, I can't find anybody. I can't find anyone at all. You know, it was, it was interesting because you had recommended me a book that I had with me. I like I grabbed like six or seven books, uh, threw them in a bucket, and it traveled with us. And you were like, you know, read Eichmann in Jerusalem. And and so you know, I I read that, and 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 in that part of what naturally makes me me, it's like I take it very seriously. Pray for your enemies. I, I saw the banality in, in people lynching me online. <laughs> you know, I was just kind of like, well, you know, they can't help this. You know, everybody, everybody's like pushing a button, pushing a button, pushing a button, not knowing that it's compounding into, you know, my great suffering. You know, all those people who retweeted 
the $75,000, the $100,000 bounty for my head, they think they're just pushing a retweet button. They don't know that they're compounding this. So, so in some ways, in some ways, I, you know, I got, I got to pity the people who were performing a high-tech lynching. Um, but, but yeah, you know that's what? why I wanted to recommend. It's, it's interesting because I didn't tell you why I, why I wanted. I don't think I said why I wanted you to read that book. I didn't want you to become a misanthrope. I'm like, I don't want. I always gonna start hating people. He needs to know they're just thoughtless. Yeah, you know, yeah. Hannah Arendt was Jewish, and she just she said to some Germans in a speech she gave in the 50s. And uh, they said, um, you know, we're ashamed to be German. She goes, well, I'm ashamed to be human. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. enthusiasms, yeah. gra- gra- um, enthusiasms capture all of us. In a way, we saw January 6th elements of the yeah. crowd were captured by an enthusiasm. And then yep. folks were captured by an enthusiasm calling to lynch, lynch literally lynch you. Literally. Yep. Unbelievable. When we think about it. But, okay, so you read, so did you read Eichmann in Jerusalem while you were? Yeah. Yeah. Right on. And, you know, but I was trying to, you know, and I was, I was, I was revisiting America's founding, um, you know, other people were giving me other things to read, but, you know, the three contemporaries that, that I thought of that have suffered great false accusations about them, even Roger Stone, Alex Jones, and Nick Quintus. And, but I, but what I do is I put on the second later is like, okay, pound for pound. Um, I'm unique in the case that I don't have the platform that any of those three have. So my suffering was a little bit more complicated in that it was tough to keep fuel in the tank. Uh, it was, it was just different. It was different for me than it was for them. And, and each of them had something unique happen to them. And, and you know, suffering is, is tailored for the individual. Um, but I think, again, the thing that for me that, that, that hurt the most and where I found some uniqueness in my suffering is that I had literally gone from the, the great uniter of the right wing. I mean, like you said, I, we were so diverse. You are such a People. uniter that, like, you threw out Nick Fuentes' name, and you know I'm not a fan at all. Yeah. I would love yeah. to do a whole show maybe with you and him to see what I'm getting wrong on this guy. And we talked about this. I go, maybe I am subtly racist that I can have no sympathy for Nick Fuentes, yet I'm friends with a lot of people in the Nation of Islam. Hmm. <laughs> right? Like, why is that? Hmm, maybe I have different standards because I'm dealing with some sort of subtle racism, right? So I don't know. That's a whole other show. But you, you are a great uniter and that you're friends with this great spectrum of folks. Like even you were the one that got me to look at Roger Stone differently. To me, he was always the guy that founded Republicans for Choice with his ex-wife. That's all I needed to know. Not my guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he's pro-life or anything, but you, you, so you were the great uniter. He's pro-life now. Like he's Andrew pro-life. Breitbart, right? Andrew would friends with every. I'm like, Andrew, this guy, this, this person. Uh, I used to tell Andrew, you're the modern conservative fusionism is literally you and your cell phone. Yes. And if you die, it's over. Because you'll be on the phone with Ann Coulter, me, not a fan. And then you'll be calling uh, Bill Crystal, me, not a fan. And then you're going to call me, and we're going to talk about punk rock music from the 80s. I like myself, so three out of, one out of three, okay. But, you know, so you're like Andrew in that you have this wide-ranging spectrum of people that you are actually friends with, right? Yeah. And you were the great yeah. uniter. I, did, I, I interrupted you. I apologize for that. Okay, so go on. No, but that that was 
it was it was it was such an awesome feeling that I was like, this is God's gift to me. I've always been able to have real friends, like where, whereas most people have like one or two real friends. You know, I have a couple dozen real friends, like you know, people I care about who care about me. We're checking on each other regularly. It had become my life. You know, much to the detriment of, of, of other parts of my personal life. And, and yet in this period, again, where I thought I was ignoring most of my friends, most of my friends put themselves in the, in the associate category. And, and to me, that was, it was like waking up one day, you think you're a billionaire and waking up poor. I mean, it was, it was, it was the thing that I prized most friendship, fidelity, you know, forget loyalty, that's for suckers. And, um, and so I, so, so in that, you know, Alex, Roger, and Nick have had more durable networks in their suffering, uh, both their public network and their private network. And, and it was just so surprising to me to find out that mine had been less durable, um, but also not not so much. Part of me was the blame. Again, I was I was discounting the people who wanted to stand with me. The Jason Joneses I, of the world and the yeah. other in our in our little uh my wife saw our, our chat group and she thought it had a very mysterious name and she said, What is that? I'm like, it's a, <laughs> if only the FBI could read these <laughs> if only the FBI could read these texts and they'd be shocked that all we're talking about is theology. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, this isn't it, interesting it, at all. What? I don't even know what they're talking about. It's true. So I, I you know, I mean, going forward, I, I realized that like God's actually given me a renewal on discovering what friendship is and what friendship isn't, and that, and that, and that oftentimes, you know, other people who who I may have thought were a friend and they thought I was an associate. You know, I'm there to. I know a lot in of, their life and to learn. I know a lot of those people, and they think that you're their friend. They just don't know how to be friends. I think in the nature of our work, mm-hmm. um, you know, I say that when you stand with the person nailed to the cross, all the jerks have left. <laughs> and I don't call them jerks. They're not jerks. Peter wasn't a jerk, right? Andrew wasn't a jerk. Thomas wasn't a jerk. Um, but you know when. You're standing when you're nailed to the cross and you look down, there's only going to be three people there. I mean, Jesus only had three people there. You think you're going to have more than three people when you're nailed to the cross? Peter's going to be in the crowd and a pretty girl's going to say, Hey, you're with that Galilean. And he's going to say, The Gal, you're, you're, you're with Ali, that guy. I don't even know that guy, Ali Alexander. What? Come, what? Yeah. No, I, 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 he was on your pod. Ali Alexander on my podcast. What? No, get out of here, lady. You know that's just normal. <laughs> that's just normal, right? Yeah. So we shouldn't begrudge him. But then you look down and you're like, oh, hmm, okay. I see John there. That guy who seemed kind of effeminate and young. He's the guy that stuck around. That guy. I didn't think John was going to be the one to stick around. <laughs> yeah, it's a lesson for us all. You know. Um, and this has happened several times in this J6 stuff. And, and we finally saw, you know, I mean, people have been really durable and resilient and not caving into the lies, which is why the J6 committee had to have that quote unquote surprise witness who told a bunch of falsehoods. I mean, factually incorrect, objectively incorrect things is that, you know, they're waiting for us 
to betray each other because they cannot defeat us alone. And in that I had few people standing with me, I have a calling to be even more resolute in when other people are suffering and called all sorts of horrible things. You know, I thought I excelled at it. I'm eager to have the opportunity to repay the favor, to pay it forward, to, you know, do what like you've done for me. I can't wait to watch somebody be accused by the entire world, have little ability to exonerate themselves and to say, I'll stand with you. Because, um, I mean, what was done to me was wrong, but what was done to 75 million Trump supporters was wrong. What was done to the millions of election integrity activists who just wanted their votes to count or us or, or people. I mean, there are people suffering Ali in a, not in an emotional or psychological or reputation sort of way like you did. Yeah. There's some innocent folks still sitting in a gulag. I mean, this is utterly unbelievable. There needs to be retribution. When we control the Congress and the White House, it's only just that we have our own J6 investigations, we have our own hearings, and that we exact retribution. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You know, the American people deserve an answer for what went on. And there will be some blame for the right. But where we'll find the shocking blame will be with our federal government, federal agents, agitators. And it's really the only way to restore the rule of law. The poor woman that was shot and killed was because of agent provocateurs, period. End of story, obvious. Thanks to, I think it was Epic Times that had the footage of of, of the mischief they were up to. How this is just ignored is unbelievable to me. It's very surreal. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's very surreal. I, I, I told a mutual friend of ours, I was like, you know, in, in 50 years, uh, I, you know, looking back, I'll call this period American surrealism. I mean, this is just, this is, um, this is truly unbelievable. And yet we're all watching it. It's like, why aren't we moved by it? You know, it's, it's you know, Dr. Malone and his colleagues, you know, talk about mass psychosis formation and other people are trying to diagnose this. It's just, what is what has overcome America is is a spirit of confusion, a spirit of depression, a spirit of you know despair. And but it reminds me again of kind of like this beautiful poetry that that kind of brought me to the Catholic Church when I started doing my investigation in March 2020. And that's that there's not a contention. I'm a debater. There's not, a, there's not an argument versus another argument as what's presented to us in society. There is an argument, and there's the inversion of that argument, right? There is God, and then there's one of his creations that oppose him. There's no yin and yang. <laughs> there's the superior, and there is that that opposes the superior. And, you know, in many ways— I, this is the only way for us to come out of what we are being presented with, you know, it's just to endorse the truth and it's going to be painful. Um, it's going to be revealing. Um, it's going to be cathartic and it's going to challenge some of the things that we love, some of the things that we like. Um, but it is the only way to peace 
the only way to a civil society. And, you know, it's for this reason that they deplatformed me. Because I won't play the game, the commentary game of what's common on every school shooting and every, you know, you know, gas price fluctuation, inflation. Like, you know, can we save the rule of law? Do we have the right to vote? You know, what are we doing here anymore? So. Well, you know, it's coming. And I don't know if you remember me telling you this in the dark days I called you. I think it was the first time times returned my call. I said, Ali. You're not going to believe me when I tell you this, but this is how it works. <laughs> Do you remember, remember I said this? I said, oh, you, yeah. you are the scapegoat. They're trying to unite America around destroying one person. That one person is you. But the way this works is we, we destroy a person uh, to bring unity to the community. And then after we've killed you, we make you a god. <laughs> and I said, we're not going to literally kill you. We're just going to savage your reputation and um, I never had any worry about you spending any time in prison. We're just going to savage your reputation, um, bankrupt you. And then in 10 years, Ali, you're not going to believe me. Trust me. Go write this down. You will be hosting the Oscars. Do you remember me saying that? I remember you saying that. And I thought, I got to get this guy off the phone. He's a whack job. <laughs> Did you think that? Whoa, 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 yeah. whoa. You thought I was a whack job? <laughs> Yeah, I, I thought, thought I was profound. I, I thought I was spinning uh, some deep philosophy, and you're like, this guy's lunatic. He's crazy. No, well, it, 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 it would take me six or seven months to realize that you were right. <laughs> you're, you're actually correct. You know what? You know what would actually, when I realized you were correct, is when I joined the Clubhouse app, and I was a hero to every Republican Ooh, on wow. the app. Ooh, wow. I love hearing that. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that. I, I just didn't know that. I wasn't hearing that. Remember, my, all my email providers have canceled me. All of our text message providers have canceled me. I haven't been able to talk to my base since January 10th or so. You're basically okay? Will Smith, an enemy of the state, with your dog. I think he had a dog. No, he didn't have a dog. That was another movie, right? But you were – or did he have a dog? I think that movie's about I you. I think you should get ownership of that. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't open up a bank account. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah, I mean, this and it's is like, wild. But and, and and you know, again, it's like I was questioning so much of what made me me. If if if, if you hear this podcast, I talk about how much I love my faith, and yet, in in some ways, I I abandoned the obedience to it. You know, you hear how much I love friendship, and yet a lot of that was taken from me. And, and then, and then I also abused the ones that were available, the ones that were there, the ones that cared, the ones at the cross. And, 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 and I love my utility and my vocation and yet it's been robbed of me. And so what's funny is I think what you hear is again, this magnetic pool, this magnetic pool is I've effectively not been live streaming regularly for two years close to two years. And then I've, you know, because Stop the Steel was taking so much time, I wasn't doing my regular live stream. So it's almost been two years and I'm like, God wants me back in August. God wants me to help shape the accountability of the Republican voter against the incoming Republican majority. Let people know where the vulnerabilities are, twist the knife so that Kevin McCarthy and the rest of them have to hold these hearings. Because it can't be the distraction of gas prices, inflation. These, these are very concerning things, and they're going to be why the Republicans win the majority. But if we don't have a select committee to investigate the select committee 
we'll never have a constitutional republic again. If we don't have court cases that go all the way up to the Supreme Court, we cannot restore executive privilege, which Joe Biden has abolished. In many ways, if there's any utility in, in Bannon's guilty verdict today, it will be that he might have a chance to restore executive privilege for this country, which allows the chief executive, the head of government, right? If you were actually going to perform an insurrection and be at the White House, by the way, and not <laughs> not Congress, kind of like BLM. But, yeah, I'm you know, glad you brought started. that up, Bannon. I mean, maybe we, when we get to the end of this, we can wrap it up and talk about that. Unbelievable. I mean, look, you and I know, what did Bannon have to do with J6? Let's be clear right now. Nothing. Nothing. You know? you know, look, I know you. I know Alex. I know Bannon. Bannon was like, what are you doing at that thing? Why are you going to that thing? I'm like, Alex, let me talk about the Uyghur. What do you want to talk about? What are you doing? He, 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 I don't even know if he knew much about it. He was kind of like, what are you doing? I mean, unbelievable. These people are kooks. Like, the fact that I'm friends with you, Alex, and Steve, I, I'm listening to people at dinner parties, and I'm like, you guys are crazy. You, my liberal friend, I'm like, you guys are literally nuts, you know? And they don't believe that I'm your friends, you know? Oh, yeah, I'm sure you're friends with them. Yeah, they're my friends. I mean, I like them more than I like you. Listen, and Steve had less than nothing to do with January 6th. You had more to do with January 6th. Hey, shh, shh. whoa, ho, bah, ho. <laughs> yeah, look, out of the four of us, of all the friends we know, I mean, maybe I was the worst. I don't know. Well, I'm just, right. So I'm just not saying I'm not saying, but they don't want to talk to me because they don't want my speech to come out because I predicted the hell in Afghanistan. Right. So they're like, yeah, let's just leave. Yep. Do you do you think yep. that what I spoke about on January 5th is why I literally never was visited, talked to? I do think that there is a Soviet control over the narrative that is guiding who is the target. And I believe that like during that first part where I was like Osama bin Laden of the election integrity movement, they migrated <laughs> from me because I said, I can show you where the collapses in protocol were, where the collapses in logistics were. And then the video footage came out of me and Alex Jones showing us getting people away from the building. Didn't the Wall Street Journal and apologize? Somebody apologized for- The Wall Street Journal got the secret, the secret service first denied giving me and Alex Jones an escort and then the Wall Street Journal got them to correct it. And then no one thought for the first four months of this, this is what's so crazy about this. The left will not remember how they've lynched me. The first four months of all of this, they assumed that I never had a permit. And then it became public that I had a permit. And then it switched to, oh, well, he abused his permit. I mean, these people are rotating the lies. Uh, but, but then, then they, they you were chasing they people around. We're not permitted to be here. The confusion yeah. of where we were permitted to be was created by the Capitol police. Yes. And that's Jason. That's where all of think about it. Not one. Like, let's you're, be you're honest. You had a friend with blonde hair, blue eyes, has a podcast, um, runs a nonprofit who was where they were not permitted to be this guy, this knucklehead. And you were like, dude, we're not permitted to be there. Get away from there. You remember that guy? <laughs> well, nobody knew, like you said. Do you like, remember that guy? Was, Do you know who I'm talking about? I remember that guy. That I guy, and that you were guy. like, dude, we're not permitted to be there. What are you doing? Idiot. You looked at that guy right in the eyes, and you're like, <laughs> you looked at that guy right in the eyes like he was the world's <laughs> biggest idiot, and you're like, what are you doing? Get away from there. Anyway, I'm not going to say who that guy is. I don't. 
I'm not going to throw <laughs> I'm not throwing him under the bus, you know. But if yeah, that guy yeah. gets called down there, he's going to be wearing a Jason Jones show hat and shirt and talk about the Uyghurs. I, I can promise you that's what's <laughs> going to happen. Anyway, go on. No, yeah, we, you know, it's like you know, we're, we're all going to go down with with our dignity. But it's it's interesting that like the people that they've chosen to crucify are the people who are convenient to the narrative. But but everyone is so innocent that the narrative is leaking all over the dang place. And so, you know, I think that they migrated on from me because, again, I was, you got to remember, when Steve Bannon was defiant before the committee, people, supporters of mine were saying, Ollie, you also need to be defiant before the committee. And I said, I am a black man in America. I will go to jail. Okay. I cannot afford this. And by the way, to go pounce in. And by the way, unlike, unlike Bannon, I mean, there's a plausible case to be made. I mean, to the naive person that you were maybe some way irresponsible for the, the, the mob, right. the, the trouble. Right. And yep. Bannon has literally nothing to do with anything that day. So it's right. just absurd. So you had to right. go. I mean, you had to go. Yeah, I had more, le- I had more legal exposure. There was more confusion. Yeah, you had to go. Um, and I testified for eight hours. Now, if I told the lie, if I, you know, cooperated with them and, and then I'm embarrassing them in public or if I committed any process crime, you know there'd be a criminal referral. You know, I've been mentioned now in two J6 hearings and the report, they're going to excoriate me. I mean, they want me, they want me crucified. But like I, I said, I made sure that I was cleaner than clean during all of Stop the Steal. You Did know, you make sure you somebody, were cleaner than clean or were you just cleaner than clean? You were just doing your job. You were just doing an event. Well, I'll never forget, you know, after the November 12 or 14 event, you know, I'm just like elated, but I can't wait to get back to the, the, the work in the state. And then I'm sitting in my hotel room with my buddy and I get a text message from a friend in Georgia telling me, you know, certification by the secretary of state is going to be on this date. Everything ends on that date, Ollie. And I just start crying. You know, I just, you know, I don't know if I've told the story publicly or not. I just start crying and, and my, my buddy walks over and he's like, you know, why, you know, why are you crying? I said, it's all about to be over and, and, and no one will know how bad it actually is, how much they've stolen from us. It's all about to be covered up. And he said, calm down, you know, and, and, um, just put your brain to it all. He's like, you got us this far, just put your brain to it. And I sat there. And I said, okay, I got to go to Georgia. And we called around and our entire coalition said that they couldn't, they were like, Ali, you've worked us to the bones for two weeks. No one's slept, no one's ate, no one's done anything. You brought us to DC, we have to rest. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to call two people who won't tell me no. You guys aren't going to like them, but they'll go to Georgia with me. And I called Alex and I called Nick. I said, please come to Georgia. I need to stop this or I need to cause so much stink that it opens the floodgates for everything. And that's what opened the floodgates for everything. And I'll never forget the plane ride home. My buddy had fallen asleep and I was sitting two seats over. And I said, here's a rare moment. I just get to pray. And I just started praying to God. And he just said, you know, be prepared for everything. And that's when I knew I was like, 
this was going to go longer than I thought. I, I wasn't, no one was thinking January 6th in November. Nobody was thinking that. Right. I was thinking like, okay, we got a couple of weeks. And then this was God telling me. Wait, you weren't, wait, wait, come on. Tell me, be honest. You can be honest. Okay. This is a very small podcast. <laughs> you weren't in the basement of the White House with Donald Trump planning an insurrection. Ironically, the J6 committee asked me a series of dates and asked if I was in the Oval Office plotting an insurrection. No joke. <laughs> you know, it's the most ridiculous thing. I was like, no. This no. is the and Soviet could- Union, brother. It's awesome. This is the Soviet <laughs> Union without the, you know, the KGB. This is the Soviet Union, but our enemies drink lattes and they're going to just try to savage your reputation and maybe send you to jail for like nine, nine months. Like this is, I mean, we can actually have fun. This is like the Disneyland version of tyranny so far. I mean, trust me, they want to take it to the Khmer Rouge level. I believe that. I really do believe that. That if we let them get out of control, this would have went dark. But people like Laura Ingram and Tucker Carlson and others standing with you guys, standing with us, was the game changer, which they never saw coming. I believe they never saw that coming. Well, I'll tell you this. One of my lawyers, I've got three on these cases that I'm in. And he called me after the Bannon verdict. And he said, you know, this is a lawyer who hadn't done much in politics, but had, 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 you know, very good at his job. And he represents a number of J6 defendants. And I mainly hired him so that people would see me standing in solidarity with the people I'm not supposed to stand in solidarity of you know, the, the people accused of violence or vandalism. And he said, I will never forget what you said, Ollie. And I said, what's that? Because there's two, there's two things that he thought were profound in what he didn't understand about our world and politics. He said, you said that the Democrats aren't trying to win. They're going for broke. And, and he, he, he said, you know, when you said that, I get why you always calculate like, oh, this isn't for an electoral victory. This isn't for a narrative win. They want to instigate either a civil war or a Timothy McVeigh-level event that they can blame on white supremacy and then sweep us all out of power. That's all this is about. And he said, I I never thought they would convict Bannon. And I said, are you you stupid? Wow. Wow. Honestly, between you and me, I never thought they would. So I mean, bro. But you're right. I mean, I'm wrong about a lot. So you're right. When it comes to this stuff, I, I'm I'm so yeah. focused on my work that I, I'm like, oh, I mean, nothing to worry there. They're not that because they they don't want it to come. I I thought that they know this is going to come back on them sooner rather than later. But what you're saying is no, they're going for broke. They they don't think there's going to be a later. Yeah, they don't think there's going to be a later. And when the when the reset button happens, they plan to be they plan to be the ones in power after that. We'll have two left-wing parties in this country. That's what they intend. And, um, and it's weird, you know, because I don't want to – again, most of my career I was normal, okay? These names that we're mentioning, I'm aware that they're controversial, right? Most of your listeners were like, who does Jason Jones have on his, on his podcast that, that he's name-dropping? Some guy who's accused of being a white nationalist and another guy who, you know – Well, let's be clear. Like, is, it, it, saying that Nick Fuentes – is accused of being a white nationalist. Is he a white nationalist? He, he is not by definition. He is a white identitarian. 
Right. And, 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 and like you said, you know, you've got friends in the nation of Islam. Those are black identitarians and some of them are black nationalists, but you know, is Nick for America becoming a white only nation? No, not at all. That's what a white nationalist is. You know, you know, I guess Spencer, here's my problem. I've, you and I have had long, I wish people, I mean, we're, we're talking like we talk when no one's listening, right? And, that, <laughs> yeah. and when we talk about Nick Fuentes, I never want to be unjust to somebody, right? I never want to spread calumny. Right. Calling someone a racist or a white nationalist is a horrible thing. I, I didn't know anything about this Nick Fuentes guy. The first time I had any, I ever saw him, I was in Austin to go give a speech at a pregnancy center event. I'm walking down the street, Nick Fuentes is with some of his friends. And I guess he's part Mexican, but he's blasting this like da 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 and this music, and it was really offensive to me. Honestly, I was like, "This guy's a nut." Didn't even know he was like a national figure. And then I heard something about him, and I'm like, "Huh." So I don't got I don't want to spread calumny, right? I I have friends across the political spectrum, as you know. I have friends that are Nation of Islam BLMers, hardcore BLM friends. They're people I love, and they love me. We're friends. We argue. Um, but I guess the reason why I have less sympathy for white identitarians is because um, for minorities and immigrants that are coming from positions of insecurity and vulnerability where they may not feel completely at home in a new country, whether like my wife's parents who are first generation or Mexican immigrants, like, I would hate for them not to know they are 100% at home in this country. And my friends in the Nation of Islam, when I hear them talk, and I hope it's not patronizing, but I'm like, you know, they were, they, they can all tell you they're inciting incident of some great injustice. Like Malcolm X, his father was pulled across train tracks and chopped in half by a radical fringe sect of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, they, weren't, they weren't the Klan, but they were, clan affiliated right and they killed Malcolm X's father that would push a young man and I get that and then when I hear them I don't feel like well I don't feel at home in this country anymore so I've wrestled with why am I okay with my friends who are black identitarians um and not okay not that I've I honestly have never met um I didn't meet one last year my first white supremacist when my children and I were did it uh, seven day long trip where we kayaked down, canoed down the Suwannee River from Georgia to the through Florida to the ocean. And at one of the fish camps, we got approached by a Nazi trying to recruit. It was very bizarre. And I let him know that my kids were half Chinese. And the friend who was kayaking with me pointed to his grandchildren and said, You know, they're half Jewish. And oh boy, <laughs> yeah, that was fun. And he quickly left, realized wrong audience, wrong audience. Um, so, like, I don't want to be unfair to this guy, Nick Fuentes, who I've honestly never even Google searched or listened to anything he's ever said. I had my one experience where I watched him. But so you would acknowledge, like, he is a white identitarian, and he says his rhetoric is offensive. And But you're black. I mean, I've heard you yeah. referred to as a white supremacist. Right, right. I mean, I've been called both a white supremacist and a white nationalist. And um, I'll never forget the first time was in 2017. I thought it was going to be a rare instance. It actually increases every year. It's mainstreaming to call people of color, which I don't even like that term, um, uh, uh, white supremacist, white nationalist, and then white nationalist adjacent, white supremacist adjacent, Ooh. or or these other things. They, I'm a black. Am I a black supremacist adjacent? 
No, no, because, you know, and this is where, this is where you and I, um, this is where I would diagnose what I don't like about, about how we think about those things. I think that these terms have to be neutral for them to have meaning. I think when you add the power dynamic, right? So I'm offended by white supremacy, not because it's stupid, which it is, but I'm, I'm offended by it because they have power. And I'm not offended by black supremacy because they're just throwing a little tantrum. Like, I think that that is way too on the road to progressivism or Marxism. And I think that it adds a dimension to language that does not belong or requires like some type of uh, phrase or prefix. And it could right? be, is so, it, and, and I worry, am I infantilizing? Am I patronizing mm, when I'm, yeah. you know, I, I, I think, I mean, look, I think about all this stuff in depth, right? Cause I want to be a kind, like everyone, I don't think there's anyone out there who's like, I want to go around hurting people's feelings. And right, right? Right. I want to be a kind, <laughs> thoughtful person. I want to be a cup of water in the middle of this world that is a desert. So I, I, you know, and you and I talk about these things a lot. So what you're saying is that you can be friends with someone who's a white identitarian and a black identitarian. Easy. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I, and I, I have friends who are black identitarians and I have friends that are white identitarians. And by the way, there are, there, there are other, you know, ethnicities and, and races where, where uh, this is, this is more culturally embedded in theirs. You know, there's, there's the in-preference bias. There, there are communities that, that care very much about their issues. And the reason why most of the world accepts it is because they're viewed as people who won't accomplish their goals. And, and don't we call ah. that in the Republican Party the soft bigotry of lowest. Well, yeah, I worry if I have soft bigotry. bigotry, that's the word I'm looking for. So is my, yeah. you know, thoughtfulness for the one, not the other, some sort of soft bigotry, you know, the where I can, but I, I don't think the white nationalists will achieve their goal either. I mean, the fact that you, no, they won't. a black man, half black, half Muslim, I still can't get over how Wikipedia lets that just sit there. Can you believe it? I mean, just, just grammatically. Can you believe No, it? I just can't even believe it's weird. Yeah. So is that I'm gonna I'm gonna call you that for the rest of your life, dude. Here's my friend Ali. He is oh, half no. black and half Muslim. And he is a leading white supremacist. Like the people who called the Trump's Muslim band a, a, a racist band. <laughs> yeah, all right. Wait, say that again. Yeah, like the you know, Trump had all these critics who said a Muslim band would be a racist band. It's like, okay, well, Islam is not a race, so it wouldn't be a racist uh, a ban also. Uh, the countries were inherited uh, from a list derived from the Obama State Department. <laughs> and uh, by the way, uh, it's not all Arabs. Yeah, by so, the way, we, you know, I love the double standard. Like right now, the Biden administration is refusing to process Afghan SIVs. Um, these are Afghans who are in mortal danger because they fought terrorists for 20 years side by side with us. They literally are just not being processed. Is that racist? Mm. I mean, what is this? I, I don't understand it for the life of me. And um, I, I will say that the Trump administration, the work I do uh, and battled ethnic minorities, I never had an administration that was more responsive or thoughtful to these issues than the Trump administration. Period. End of story. It's really there's under- really a culture of life, uh, I think, in the in the Trump administration. Really, really. 
So that's you know? what it is, right? It's the culture of life. It's the culture of thoughtfulness to the weak and the vulnerable and those suffering, which you just woke culture is just a culture of, Hey, look at me. I'm, I'm a sweet, awesome person. I care. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to yeah. do anything. I just care so much. Look at my Facebook. I have a flag on my profile picture. Totally true. Um, uh, what do you, I want to, I want to, I want to land this plane. I took like two hours of your life from you today. Um, but I really, oh, it's been my pleasure. I really, we've, we've been overdue for this. I know, I know. And I've left you alone. Like I leave my friends alone. I, I, okay. Ali's doing good now. Do you notice once things get good, you're like, you don't hear from me. <laughs> like, yeah. I had a friend whose career took off an actor and he's like, I didn't call him for like two years. And then he's like, he was really mad at me. And he's like, oh, wow, wow, you're like, you're famous now. You're like taking off everyone's calling you. everyone wants to be your friend now like i'm here bro i love you just do your thing <laughs> he's like oh i thought you were mad at me but i'm not mad at you what do we, you know I'm, I'm sure you got more than enough people calling you right now do your thing um and i'm just so i'm proud of you i'm grateful to be your friend and i think god it was a great grace like you've got a unique privilege that very few people have ever gotten to go through um which i think maybe now you can see it as that they didn't even cancel you for one election cycle. Um, you developed really good friends. I think that your relationship with our creator must have been deepened. And uh, and you will be able to, like you said, you are going to have friends. Pray Jesus, it's not me. But you're going to have some friends that are unjustly crucified and are going to need someone to talk to who understands. And you didn't have that person, and they'll have you. And that will be the great grace. Uh, also, you'll be able to be magnanimous and gracious and understanding that those you serve are strong people with egos that don't like being in the position of vulnerable. We all have had that relative, right? The strong uncle, the toughest, strongest yeah. uncle who gets cancer and then you need to change his diapers and he just ornery and he hates it, you know? Because he's not used to being the weak guy in the family and now people need to spoon feed him and change his diapers. You kind of got to be that uncle for a while. Right. True. <laughs> and, right. It's very true. And now you're like, oh, I, I think you'll be in a better position to to do your job, which is to speak up for disaffected communities that aren't allowed to that have been that are deplorable. I think deplorable is such a great name that, that are seen as deplorable, Truly. untouchable, unworthy of having a voice in this constitutional republic, which is insane that we would think that way about anyone in our political community. And I think your best days are coming. And I hope when you are hosting the Oscars, um, you better give me a ticket. <laughs> I think it'll be you. you. You're the one who's going to be giving me a ticket. But, uh, you know, I, you know, on that deplorable thing, I can't help but remember that in the 26th election, look, you know, it's like I come from the black community. We have an affectionate way of, of, of uh, morphing a word that hurts us into a word of familiarity and bond and that's the N word. And during the, during uh, the 2016 election, you know, we watched largely, you know, the white community do this on both sides. One side was proud to call themselves deplorables and the other side was proud to call themselves nasty women and they don't know why they lost. <laughs> so, Oh, um, you're right. The, and by the way, deplorable yeah. is, yeah, that is, we should just call it the, 
The D word. Yeah, the D word. Bro, don't use the D word. You can't use the D word. You're, you're allowed. I'll tell my liberal friends, no, 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 bro. We call that the D word. You're not allowed to say it. I'm allowed to say yeah. it. Me and my friends can say it to each other, but you, you need to call it the D word, please. Thank you. Look, the best thing about the overturning of Roe versus Wade is black genocide is now over in red states. Bing, bang, bada, boom. It's over. Yeah. And you're going to see this renaissance and this flourishing and this growth. I think, I think in 1920, and I might be wrong on this, but I think the black community was like 20%, uh, 20% of America. And now it's what, 10%? 13 right now. 13%? Yeah. So, that's, I mean, that's dramatic. Yeah, we've had a plateau, but it's, it's actually going to go down somewhere closer to that number 10. And, and um, I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's an existential crisis, especially uh, if you're concerned about kind of this micro issue that's popped up in the black community, and that's the ADOS, you know. Uh, it, it's, it's, um, we're talking about a people with a lineage that might not have any representation in 50 years or 80 years. And, uh, um, you know, it is a genocide and, it, and it's a genocide that started with abortion. And, um, you know, you're right. I mean, 33% of all blacks live in the South. So um, we're talking now about a plurality of black people will be spared from the predatory advertising of Planned Parenthood and the black genocide that has left, I think it's 21 to 23 million black babies aborted. You know. Yeah, which is unbelievable. So I, I just Googled it. It says that in, 20, in 1910, 1919, they were only, it was 10% of the population. That's striking to me, and now it's 12.4%. I don't know, but you talk about the American descendants of slaves. Uh, my friends who are BLM, um, they're all about Americans' descendants. That, that's the whole, you know, those are my friends. They're like, no, it's about American descendants. What is it? What does it stand for again? Yeah, you, you got it. American, American descendants, descendants of slaves. So yeah. uh, my friend, who's like my sister, she, we, we talk every day. She's like, Jason, I don't want to hear about black. It's, it's American descendants of slaves. That's all I care about. So like, that's all I care about. <laughs> American descendants of slaves. Don't talk to me about black. It's American descendants of slaves. I would like an America that reflects the people I saw on January 6th, which was like the most, which you could take that so out of context if you were the liberal media, clip that up. But I never saw such a diverse, united, like kumbaya crowd in my life. It was unbelievable. Me either. Uh, I've been to three Republican national conventions, two Democrat national conventions on the floor when Hillary accepted her nomination. Press pads. You know, I wasn't, you know, <laughs> a Democrat delegate or anything like that. Been to, you know, all kinds of CPACs, all kinds of other events, tech events, blah, blah, blah. I have never been to as diverse an event as a Stop the Steal event. I would tell people the Trump events are more diverse than the Republican events. But Stop the Steal was more diverse than the Trump movement. And it was, I'm telling you, it was just, it was, you know it. It was just beautiful. And it was beautiful in the way, and let me, let me brag about this, in that in the Protestant church, we talk about reaching, you know, this community, that community, that community, and it never materializes. Not until you step foot into a mass do you see a truly universal church. And you're like, oh, it was here waiting for us. Yeah, that's, that was that's, a big, you know. that's interesting. Cause when I first walked into a Catholic church in DC, 
I looked around and the first thought that struck me, I was, I was evangelical for about a year from atheist, evangelical to Catholic. And I thought, Oh, this is what heaven's going to look like. Yep. It was just everybody. Amen. And a lot of homeless folks too, by the way, it's every, you know, I remember being struck by that and just hanging out in the back, just sitting there chilling. I thought this is something else right here. And it made, I had a lot of prejudice against Catholicism and mm-hmm. that helped. That was where it just sort of kind of melting away. Mm-hmm. So I, how yeah, can, it's not diversity for diversity's sake. It's, it's ideological oneness, the dangers of multiculturalism and that the only path forward for all of us together, you know, is to hold some of the same things together. And, um, you know, I want that for my nation, e pluribus unum, and I want that in my church. And uh, the deep state doesn't want that. Why? <laughs> yeah, why? They want to divide it. They want to rule us. They want to divide us. They want to pit us against each other. Yep. I mean, is that it? Give us some, I want to add on two things. Tell us how we can support you, number one. You've been deplatformed everywhere, so maybe we have to, like, put a chalk mark on a mailbox and then you meet us by a park bench and then we'll give you a paper bag. I don't know how we're going to do this. So how can people support you? And, and, uh, and then maybe give us what we should be looking for in the next, next, uh, in this election cycle. Thank you uh, for the opportunity, Jason. And, and I've really appreciated, you know, the friendship that your, you and your family have uh, lent me. Uh, including uh, the airsoft uh, fight. <laughs> you, to shoot, you got but, to shoot uh, my kids with airsoft guns. That was fun. <laughs> yeah, and they're annoying friends. <laughs> <laughs> you but, don't like, yeah, he's, he's a little annoying. Okay, but, <laughs> that's so funny. But but seriously, um, uh, so I'm I'm in a lot. I'm suing the committee to block um, them rummaging through cell phone records. We recently protected um, one of my volunteers, a woman who just volunteered on January 5th to pass out signs. We recently won a victory and got the committee to withdraw rummaging through her cell phone records. I'm still suing Nancy Pelosi and the, um, and the committee. Uh, I have had to testify before the committee. That's an ongoing thing. The federal grand jury, that's an ongoing thing. And I'm also in a lawsuit called Trump v. Smith where eight U.S. Capitol Police officers are suing me and Donald Trump and some other people accusing us of violating their civil rights and leading to their bodily injury. The multi-million dollar lawsuit that's not really being covered anywhere, but, um, you know, it's a very real practice of lawfare that is an ongoing expense. So we've set up a legal defense fund at givesendgo.com slash Ali Alexander. Givesendgo.com slash Ali Alexander. Um, and you know, it's really hard cause I can't connect with my base when I can connect them up with my base. I'm going to be no problem funding these lawsuits, but, uh, instead, uh, we, we are approaching a hundred thousand dollars in legal debt and, uh, it's not fun, but I've got some great Patriot lawyers. And, um, so that's a way to help. Um, and also prayers. I, I, I was struck by the number of people who were, you know, I had a quarter million followers on on Twitter, and the number of people who are praying for me were in the tens of thousands, if not more, and on a daily basis. And you could just feel that. It was, it was what empowered me, you know, the number of people who would drop psalms or prayers in Periscope chats or, or tweet replies. 
it was just, like I said, the ethos of the Stop the Steal movement was masculine and Christian, and that's what made it a little bit different than other right-wing movements. Um, and so, you know, kind of getting people to become prayer warriors and put a hedge of protection about me is, is, is you know, priority one. Um, and lastly is, is, look, we're going to win the midterm elections. What we do with that will determine whether or not we can keep this republic together long enough to save it or not. And I don't say that with any hyperbole. What the deep state wants is a Republican majority that Republicans get disenchanted with, that Republicans will exit the political process, that civil people will exit the civil process, that peaceful people will stop being peaceful. This is an inversion. They did it with the military and the mandatory vaccines. They've done it with all kinds of institutions. They're pushing out the patriots. They're pushing out the believers because they are preparing for a power grab that is our nightmares. This doesn't have to be the black pill. You do not have to despair. You do not have to surrender. What you have to do is fight every inch with every inch, only escalating when the other side escalates. And that other side is the deep state. It's not the Democrats. It's the deep state. The Democrats are just their useful idiots. And they have Republicans, too. And they have Republicans, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, they've got, frankly, they've got all of Republican leadership. So what we've got to do is put pressure on our members of Congress and pressure on Kevin McCarthy to have a select committee to investigate the previous select committee. They have got to drum up enough evidence to allow people like me and Steve Bannon and other people who do process rights were violated in this process, drum up enough evidence to the public domain so that we can then sue people for violate sue the government for violating our rights. Too often the liberals take power and then they settle these lawsuits funding liberal institutions with federal government and taxpayer money. We need to do the same dang thing on the oh, right. I like that. We need we need the fourteen thousand hours of security footage pushed into the public domain from the US Capitol. There are people, you know, in this country we, we believe in the common law. You have the right to face your accuser. You have the right to a speedy trial. And you have the right to assemble a defense. Those three principles of being the accused in this country, the basic due process rights, do not exist for the J6 defendant. They are not allowed to assemble a reasonable defense because the government is keeping unfoyable, that's not a word, but the term, footage away from them, which will exonerate hundreds of patriots there are 840 people who have been arrested in connection with uh trespassing parading vandalism or violence related to the capitol hundreds of those people were let in by officers and only one has had the courage to go to trial and then be exonerated for it so this footage will exonerate it and that's what we should want in this country due process rights if you committed a crime you got to do the time but if you were lured into something that you shouldn't have been doing, then you didn't commit the crime. And in America, we let the innocent go, even if that means a couple of guilty people get let go. So, so we, I, I, I can't stress it more. There's nothing more important than letting Republicans know that if you don't make this a useful majority, we're probably not going to vote for you again. Or we'll have to be like those brave Christian abolitionists and venture out to set a new right-wing party. 
This is a challenge uh, ahead of us. It really is existential. We can rise to the occasion. We can engage in despair, um, but we will have to fight in a way that we've never had to fight before. And that means challenging our leaders and saying, you know, it's not good enough to be better than a Democrat. Yeah, I know. And if we want to know how vicious and cruel they can be, they wanted to destroy you. They wanted to drive you to commit suicide. They wanted to murder you. They had, um, uh, you know, bounties. They want, they will be sending Steve Bannon to prison. They have innocent Americans sitting in a gulag. I mean, this is really unbelievable stuff. And they would have succeeded um, if not for, I believe, the startling courage of so many conservative leaders. Um, so that's that's what gives me hope. So I, I'll, Ali Alexander, I can't thank you enough. I'm going to put uh, how we can support you in the show notes. I encourage everyone to please, please support Ali. Um, you know, and we need we do need election integrity. This election, this this I believe the election was stolen. The result of Biden being president is not only this country is in collapse. Afghanistan has been turned into a hellhole. ISIS is on the rise again around the world. Uh, all those Afghan women we said we cared about are now in burqas from head to toe, being set on fire, being being beaten, being shot. There's a genocidal war against the Hazara. And none of this would have happened if Donald Trump was uh, still president. And um, elections matter. Elections matter indeed. All right, Ali Alexander. I'm looking forward to seeing you soon, brother. I'm going to see you this week. So uh, I cannot wait. I'm looking forward to Thank you, brother. I appreciate the uh, Jason Jones show. Who I'm about to, uh, do you have a, do you, do you read Epic Times? Occasionally, you know, online. I don't read the uh, the paper, but it's a really good paper. I, I think it's the best paper in the history of the world. It's really good. I mean, really, you know, no joke. It's really, really good. The journalists really, really care. It's presented in a visually appealing way, like they do really, really good work. So they sponsor the show. And if you go to iReadEpoch.com and you use the code Jason Jones, you can get a subscription for the year for $77. The first month is only a dollar if you want to try it out. So Ali, That's a steal that we don't want to stop. No, oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm stealing that. That is another thing I'm stealing. Yeah, that is a steal. You don't want to stop. Go to iReadEpoch.com. Use the code Jason Jones. And with all that money you save on your newspaper, you go on over to where are we going next, Ali? Do you know where we're going next? We're going to GibsonGo.com slash Ali Alexander for our monthly contribution at my legal. That's business. right. You like I you, you figure out what you save with the code Jason Jones. You go to give, send, go, and you give that to Ali. But I was going to say you also go to MyPillow.com, the other sponsor of this show. <laughs> Actually, now you're going to get more money, Ali, because you're going to look in the slippers right now at MyPillow.com. They're a better deal than ever. There's inflate. Have you heard there's inflation? Have you heard about this? It's runaway. I've heard it. It's a story. It's true. It's actually real. It's affecting my diet. <laughs> you know, affecting your diet. You know, there's a young woman who we're rescuing. She thought we were stalling her evacuation because of budget concerns. She said she could fast for 40 days. She's strong. Uh, oh, wow. And we're like, no, you keep eating. Okay, please keep eating. Yeah. But, um, but Ali clearly has cut down on his food consumption. But if you go to MyPillow.com, MyPillow's Mike Lindell slippers are now cheaper than they ever were, ever, even in the midst of this great inflation. How does he do it? I don't even know. But now you're saving even more money. 
So you go to MyPillow.com. You buy the slippers. You figure out how much you save with the code Jones. You go to IReadEpoch.com. You get the subscription to Epic Times. You figure out how much you save there. You add those two together, and you give that to Ali. See how that works, Ali Alexander? It gives and go. And all of those opportunities are in the show notes. And do you know when you do things like this, support our sponsors and support our friends, that's how you know you have your oar in the water in your rowing. You're actually on the team. You're, you're on the team. You're in the boat rowing. You're not just sitting there taking up weight, making it harder for us to row. You're actually making it easier for us to row, and we're going farther faster. So that's what we need to do. So there we go, Ali. We just finished the show. You were with me for the commercials. That's awesome. All right, brother. Thank you, Ali. I appreciate you. All right. See you tomorrow. God bless. Later. God bless. All right, everybody. That was Ali Alexander. I mean, one of the most famous men in the world. A kind, gentle, godly man. I, I just wish. I hope. We're always texting. We're in this little group. We're texting about theology, philosophy, God, the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Rosary, da 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 da, and I'm like, I wonder. I'm always like, are they? Is the FBI? Is the NSA reading these emails? Going, huh? This is like, I'm getting a little education here in theology. I hope. I always hope they are. I'm like, what do they think we're doing? Plotting something? No, 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 no. Just talking theology. So you got. I think this was a great opportunity for you to get to meet the real Ali Alexander. I'm gonna put his Wikipedia page. In the show notes, and I want you to go there. If you are one of those folks that edits Wikipedia pages, and I want you to go there and and edit it up. Fix it up. Fix it up. Cause some problems. Cause some tr- Fix it up because it's a little absurd. Just simply, and if you're Becky and Keith working for um, the Alan Gutmacher Institute or some other Soros institution, and your, your job is to like listen to the show and take notes on everything Ali said, you should be offended, right? I mean, I just think we should all agree calling somebody half black, half Muslim is a little insane. I'm half white. I'm going to start introducing myself. Hi, my name is Jason Jones. I'm half white, half Catholic. I'm, uh, I'm mixed. I'm mixed. It's all a little absurd. But I hope you enjoy the show. And if you listen to the whole show, God bless you. And I forgot to tell you, it's a long show. If you listen to this all in one, one sitting, God bless you. Thank you very much. And... um we appreciate it. Go also to the Vulnerable People Project's website, thegreatcampaign.org. Uh, we're continuing to put cameras in schools in Afghanistan. We're drilling wells. Our first medical clinic for women will be done this month. And um, it is all because of our generous donors. Yesterday, I was able to give a $5,000 check to a Green Beret who has an organization that is headed over to Ukraine to begin demining. And he was so grateful. He acted as if I gave him the biggest gift in the world because they've actually been struggling fundraising. I said, what do you need to get over there to get going? He goes, we need another $5,000. I said, what else do you need? He goes, we're going to need another 11000 in the next two weeks. I said, if you can't get it, we're going to do it. And he was just overwhelmed with gratitude to me. And I'm like, don't thank me. Thank our donors. Because of the generous support of our donors, we have been able to stand in solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world. And, you know, when I was handing him this check, I thought to myself, thanks to our donors and this brave man and his work, this Green Beret, who, by the way, was blown up. His name is Ryan Hendrickson. Stepped on a 25-pound landmine. Only seven pounds of the explosives went off, but ripped his legs off his body. And surgeons, after 26 surgeries, reattached his legs. God bless doctors. Unbelievable. Well, this man is headed to Ukraine 
And where the Russians withdraw, they've left booby traps, IEDs, and landmines. As I was giving them this $5,000, I thought there's going to be a, there's children who are going to live because of this man's courage and my donor's generosity. There's grandmas that are going to get to kick it around for their 10, 15, 20 years with their grandkids because of this brave man. I'm not that guy. I'm not going to Ukraine and poking around with a stick and a gizmo looking for landmines. I'm not that guy. I'll make phone calls and do podcasts asking for money. This guy's the hero, and the donors are the hero. So go to thegreatcampaign.org. Give your best one-time gift. And if you can, be a monthly donor. Monthly donors allow us to budget for our work. All right? This has been the Jason Jones Show with Ali Alexander. Until next time, and by next time, I mean tomorrow. Aloha. This has been the Jason Jones Show, powered by Mudhouse Media. Oh, 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 oh